and welcome back to some interseason goodness from the sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stogden. I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. Me too. Mm. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. You nailed it, mate. You nailed it. And speaking of nailing it, also joining us, it's Tim Mayton. If I met a girl who was raised by wolves and hated me, I would also do a bunch of stupid shit to impress her. <laughs> again me too so far I, maybe the listeners are picking up on these references or they're just like these guys are talking a lot of sense <laughs> it's the sensible talk we <laughs> it's the sensible episode who knew it's about to get real unsensible listeners don't you worry it's a very interesting topic this week it's a topic i know we wanted to talk about for quite a long time there's been a lot of chatter on the discord about this kind of subject and and all across social media, because there's a very popular, dare I say, group of films. Not necessarily a franchise, but uh, a particular topic. We'll get to it in a second. Pigs! I'll, te- I'll tease it. Pigs. Pigs are included. We'll be talking pigs, ladies and gentlemen. And that's not a tease. That's a guarantee. <laughs> but before we get to talk about pigs and everything else that encompasses this incredibly interesting topic, let's say thank you to our lovely patrons on patreon.com slash sequelizers, shall we? Because... Hey, listeners, if you'd like to support us, you can go and get ad-free episodes. You can get early access to episodes. You can get exclusive merch. You can get discounts on merch. You get to vote on an episode. Sometimes you can even pick an episode, both seasonal and inter-seasonal episodes. You can tell us what to talk about. We're going to have some picks from patrons coming up later on in this inter-season, and they've already got their picks in for season nine coming up in like 10 weeks' time as well. That's how forth planning these patrons are. It's impressive. And we like to be, you know, planned far ahead and, and get the balls rolling on some pitches and stuff and some ideas for the interseason stuff. So you'll be hearing some picks from the lovely patrons later on. But in the meantime, those people are known as the executive producers. They are the people at the highest of the tiers on patreon.com slash sequelizers. And those people are... Andy Steen. Our plan was that we would stick around for another month and play it safe. I like that plan. And if we put it off for a month and I find some wonderful boyfriend, then what'll we do? Uh-oh. Come on, Gigi. I'm gonna put my paws together and pray you're not serious. Jonathan Firth Clark. Seeing you makes me wish I'd never given up being human. Now go to sleep. Josh Miles. Why, Mito, you're looking fit. Xenos. Jeez, what a snob. And did you see that cat? Mike Salvia. Farewell to freedom in the Adriatic and to days of wild abandon. What is that, Shakespeare? No, it's Porco. See you later. Josh van der Sluis. I'm a bona fide celebrity. And Michael Belcher. Ah, it's him! Careful, it's hot! Thank you much for your support, gentlemen. We appreciate every executive producer and every patron we have on patreon.com slash sequelizers. So yeah, with the little intros out of the way, this week's topic is Studio, and I'm going to say it, Ghibli. <laughs> with a soft G or a hard G, whichever, whichever hard G that G. is. That's a G. hard G with the G. Mm. 
Yeah, the uh, world-renowned, Oscar-winning, incredibly successful, incredibly popular Japanese animation studio. Matthew, I feel like it's only appropriate that I go to you first. I know I tend to go to you <laughs> first anyway, but yeah. this is a very Matt topic and a very Matt episode. Do you like me some cartoons? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, can let's get this right out of the way right at the get-go, okay? The Japanese... I can't remember the exact, I always forget the exact word, but there's a word they have for borrowed words, i.e. stuff they've taken from another language and they just use their own language to say it. And the alphabet is obviously different in Japan. So for example, I always go DVD player. It's like, oh, well, a DVD player is not in the classic Japanese language. So it's DVD player. And it's like, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Whereas Ghibli is an Italian word said by Japanese people as Ghibli with a J. Often things, yeah. Yeah, if you sound if you sound out in like phonetic katakana to speak the Mm. Japanese word that is the Italian word, stay with us, listeners. J i b u r i. So jiburi is how you would phonetically spell that Japanese slash Italian word. Yeah, but I think the original (laughs) Arabic is ghibli or ghibli. So oh god, Arabic as well. Oh my god. Yeah, so many layers. Desert wind or something. But the point is, it's. The, like, if you say Studio Ghibli or Studio Ghibli, you are saying it correctly. I do not like the sound of Ghibli. It sounds like giblets, which is in it. So <laughs> Ghibli it is. I, I feel like giblets is a very British thing. Like if you said, <laughs> oh, it sounds like giblets to any like an American or a Japanese person, I'd be like, I have no idea. Is that a Harry Studio Potter Gi- thing? <laughs> Studio Ghiblets. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that sounds like something out like of my the- soul pitch. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, so so Studio Ghibli. Um, they've been going. Uh, okay, actually, again, there's another thing with regards to what doesn't doesn't count as a Ghibli film. We'll, we'll get to that. But they've been going basically since arguably the mid '80s. There are some things that are released in the '70s which could count and sometimes do count technically. But if we're going down to the brass tacks of a company, a business, there are like twenty odd films that, that are our canon, as it were, um, released by a handful of creatives. Um, the most notable being Hayao Miyazaki, and the other one being Esao Takahata. And there are a few others in there. We'll talk about them as well. There are a handful of films like The Castle of Cagliostro and The Red Turtle, and sometimes Nausicaa, or Nausicaa, depends how you want to pronounce it, uh, Valley of the Wind, that get included in that because it's like one of the first ones kind of thing. Um, that's fine, but we're not really here to say what is and isn't a Ghibli film. We're talking about a case of quality and what these things are and impact, etc., etc., etc. Because you can get down to the minutia of like, oh, does this count because all the components of X, Y, Z? And it's like, well, well, yes and no. Th- things like um, Norsker of the Valley of the Wind is directed by Miyazaki, you mentioned earlier, Correct. arguably and almost inarguably the most famous and well-recognized oh, yeah. of, the, of yeah. the creators and directors in Studio Ghibli. But that was released before Studio Ghibli was founded as we know it today kind of thing. So it was produced by a different company, animated by some of the people who still work at Ghibli, but essentially, yeah, like uh, an- animated by teams from like Topcraft and stuff and then distributed by Toei and this whole other thing of like the, the behind the scenes kind of corporate side of things was very different then in the, in the 70s. And this is going through to the mid 80s. Ghibli itself officially officially begins in 1986 with the release of Castle in the Sky. That is kind of the the proper the proper release timeline, I guess. 
Yeah. But yeah, they had produced a bunch of other stuff. There's like a dozen or so non-Ghibli films that are created by creators who now work or have worked at Ghibli. And as you mentioned, Red Turtle, that came out later in yeah. the 2010s, but is not a Ghibli film because it's not released under that studio. But a lot of the creators are the same. Welcome to animation, everybody. Whether it's anime <laughs> or Western animation, you get a lot of cross-pollination between teams and studios and all that kind of stuff. It happens a lot in that industry. <laughs> mm. It's what's true for film and TV in general. It's the yeah, idea. Of yeah, true. People people will say like, "Oh, I like this," and it's like, "Ah, well, did you appreciate that this was folded into this parent company?" And blah 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 blah. Columbia, TriStar, all part of Sony now. That kind of thing. And it's like, well, it wasn't at the time, but now they can release a box set as a Sony thing because <laughs> they own all this stuff. In the same way that you can see certain Fox properties on a Disney property because now Disney owns the whole thing in the same way that Disney technically owns Ghibli in a way because of distribution stuff in a capacity because they, they handle the international distribution from the 2000s onwards, etc. But this is all company corporate speak and while it may seem boring, it's actually very important because it informs what goes forward because uh, at the very heart of this company is essentially two blokes. Um... At least outwardly, and most notably. And one's Hayao Miyazaki, the, the noticeable, obvious, bearded, smiling, heavily smoking guy. Um, <laughs> and Isao Takahata, the different guy. And I, I will get more to them, them later in terms of actually have their, their effect on the company and what they do and their, their offerings. But the, what I will say now is that you come for Miyazaki, you stay for Takahata. And very much a case of Miyazaki draws you in with the with the magic and the the world building and the intense visuals and everything else. Takahata's trying to talk to the adults in the room with other stuff. Same sort of principles in theory, but a different pacing and cadence. And it's, you tend to appreciate those films later than you do earlier. But we'll come back to that. Um, so yeah, company is founded, um, releases those stuff, and then gets real fucking popular real fast. So there's obviously a huge anime boom in the late 80s. Um, it's already been a thing, it was already popular, but distribution meant that it was getting out really quickly. You had stuff like Akira and Grave of the Fireflies and My Day of Totoro in 88. And that is a huge hit in one go. I mean, I mean, I don't, I, it's, it's hard to explain in terms of, um, I know we always talk, we did this in a previous episode about our favorite years for film, etc. But 1988 for animation, sorry, Japanese animated film specifically, is crazy. Because Akira is some, well, I'd say one of mine, definitely, uh, favourite animated movies of all time sort of thing. Definitely oh, Japanese yeah. Anime. That's not a controversial... St you made <laughs> that sound like, well, it's mine. I don't know about you guys. Well, no, it's, it's more uh, because... I like I'm, this little yeah. obscure, like, uh, un unknown <laughs> thing called Akira. Akira. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know, maybe, like, <laughs> the most influential and famous anime film ever. Yeah, exactly, you know, yeah, yeah. that one. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole point. You've got three things coming out at the same time. And in the same time, when really, animation in, in America was a sense of, like, You've got Don Bluth doing his sort of thing. You've got Disney kind of swimming in circles, being very <laughs> underappreciated with their stuff in the eighties. Um, and but just you know, just about to swim forward dramatically with the Little Mermaid. Little this Mermaid, point. yeah, yeah, later, exactly, yeah. Um, but then you, but they were all still the same thing. They're all pitched at kids, um, with a you know a very a very very slight aspect of like Felix the Cat sort of shit in the background. <laughs> like, oh, this is an adult cartoon, but you wouldn't even talk about those sort of things. Whereas. Akira is really hard-hitting science fiction, dystopian, apocalyptic future stuff. Grave of the Fireflies is a periodic drama about World War II, and My Neighbor Totoro is just a friendly countryside story about a weird beast bear thing 
a round neighbor boy who lives in the woods with a cat who's hollow. Um, it, it, it's so weird. And those three films, I cannot stress enough, those three films are some of the greatest animated movies of all time, especially from Japan. And people, the fact they all came out in the exact same year is crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, so what with all this stuff building, suddenly this sort of this searchlight, as it were, starts to sort of turn um, eastward to Japan. And you get more and more releases in the 90s. is a bit of a slow build. But then Princess Mononoke comes out in 1997. And it's the most expensive Japanese movie at that or animated movie at that point. And it's like, holy crap. And it's exceptionally good. And then because of the release of like Toonami in on Cartoon Network in, in, in Europe and America. Anime is more a popular thing now, and Ghost of the Shell is starting to come out and things like that. You're getting more and more hits. Tenchi Muyo and Gundam and, and Love Hina, the things like, you know, are being released and getting more popular, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everything changes in, as, as the sort of this century comes in 2001 when Spirited Away wins the Oscar. And then it, it's gone from, oh, what a strange outlying <laughs> novel foreign thing it's oh yeah like, japanimation what well, that is mm-hmm. interesting Anime. obscure Anime. thing yeah. yeah it's called japanimation um but no it's it's it's, it's essential also uh, you know away from people saying like manga it's what they're calling the japanese animation it's like no they're not um but and then it becomes just a mainstream thing and i say mainstream nothing's ever truly mainstream well, until yeah. someone's grand can name it and even then it's like oh i think i heard about one of their marvel films that kind of thing you're not going to be like you know, having very deep conversations about the law with some 80-year-old who doesn't give a shit, arguably. So anime is still a thing that's still quite fringe. It's becoming more mainstream, infinitely so, much more readily accessible, etc. But Ghibli is very much part of that push. It's very much a, how do you sell it? And it was always sold as, a, oh, this is just the, di- the Japanese Disney. That's what this is. And once people said that, they went, oh, okay, I'll just crack on uh, Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> oh, no. I'll just put on Only Yesterday. No, 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 no. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> You're watching the wrong <laughs> movies. Put, put the Cat Returns on or something. Oh, Cat's Walking Upright. Brilliant. That's a Disney film. I was like, no, this is better than Disney. Um, and again, popularity in terms of what's being produced um, and how successful it all is. And then in the early 2000s, it went from being these sort of not being any way discredited them, but the sort of standard uh, 80s and 90s voice actors got replaced with, let's do a new, you know, uh, releasing it for DVD and then later Blu-ray. Let's have big names and Disney bring in major, major actors to do um, dubs, basically. And this is one of the rare examples where if someone says, I'd rather watch the dub than the, anima- than the subtitle of the original version, I'm like, yeah, that's fair. Well, hey, because, that's me. Hello. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that because both performances are really, really fucking good. At the same time, bringing something different and nuanced and an alternate take on things is the same thing as just watching someone else performing Shakespeare. It's just in on a play. It's, it's a different, uh, different way of coming at that character, and that's always very interesting. Um, and now Ghibli is in a weird, weird place because, as we'll get to later, Takahata's dead. Yep. Miyazaki is... Takahata passed on. away in 2018. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, Miyazaki, I don't want to say he's on the way out. It sounds crass, but mm. he's very old, and um, and he's retired like three different times. He, oh, he keeps going away. He keeps yeah. going back. But there's a lot of upstart companies which are sort of trying to be the next Ghibli. And Ghibli isn't like Disney. It's not like one man's name that's been going like you know with this sort of iron control since the fucking 30s. This is a couple of people working on different releases every now and again for the last 30 years. And that's a long time, obviously. 
but it's not a guaranteed full-on legacy at this point. Mm. But we'll we'll come back to that. So what you guys are obviously history with Japanimation. What's what's your general history with with the the Ghibli stuff? Were you introduced by some? It's usually some fucker lending you a disc and saying this is really sweet or this will make you dead inside. Um, <laughs> it's always great with the fireflies. What was your what's your general introduction? Let's, let's go with let's go with Tim first. Tim, I've been trying. I've been racking my brain and and trying to remember exactly when I saw my first Studio Ghibli. Um, I think it would have been Spirited Away. Um, which was kind of, you know, the, the, the real, that's when everything, you know, blew up kind of thing. Um, it might have been Howl's Moving Castle. So definitely 2000s, basically. Yeah. Early 2000s. And, Mm. um, I had, uh, I had a girlfriend kind of in, during university who had most of them on DVD. Um, and so watched a significant chunk of them then. Um, and there, I'm a, I'm a sound just real, real basic now. <laughs> I haven't super gone back to them since then. I have a few that are my Fair favorites enough. and that I have watched, but a lot of the more recent stuff, um, you know, the, the stuff like the wind rises and when Marnie was there and things like that, I know they're incredibly acclaimed. Um, I know that if I watch them, I'm sure to enjoy them, but I just haven't got round to it. And so I'm kind of very much like, I think the last one I actually saw was Tales from Earthsea, uh, which is from 2006. Yeah. Um, so I, I have not watched any of the recent stuff. Um, so at some point I sh- will probably go through and watch, you know, Ponyo and Up on Poppy Hill and stuff like that and mm. have my heart broken and delight in them <laughs> and all those kind of things. I think you're not necessarily alone in that, Tim. I think mm. I think that's the kind of thing that a lot. Well, I, again, I'm being very presumptuous here, but I assume a lot of the audiences do the same thing because these movies, because of the nature of physical copies in Japan, for a long time have been very expensive to get a hold of. Mm. But now, in certain regions, I know that in, when I'm watching YouTube videos, they're like sponsored by Surfshark, sponsored by VPN, <laughs> Nord, NordVPN, or whatever it is, and you're like, okay, and it's like, did you know that outside of America, everyone's watching these Ghibli films on Netflix? You know, go mm. over to the Canadian version, the, the European version. So they've gone to Netflix recently, but as we all know from streaming services, who knows how long it's going to last. So as you say, yeah. it's the case of like, do I binge them all now? Do I try and what's the, what's the plan? Yeah. Because if you don't, all on Netflix right now. Well, yeah, UK listeners out there, you can pretty yeah. much get all twenty six. I think it is. Mm. There's like twenty there, of the twenty six. There was, it was on. a big deal when they arrived as well because they did them in yeah. like chunks of like I want to say like four at a time every yeah, month. They, yeah. They, they didn't do the whole binge thing that Netflix usually mm, do. They, they specifically re- released... And they, like, they parceled them out yeah. very carefully where it was like, okay, this month you're going to get Spirited Away, which is, you know, the one that perhaps most That's the people one that won have, the Oscar. Yeah, That's the one you've heard of. Most yeah. people will have seen of that. But you're also going to get My Neighbor, the Yamadas, and you're going to get, you know, Porco Rosso. And it was yeah. it was very much like, okay, here's the one you've heard of. And now also here's some other stuff that's also great, but that you if if you if we'd have just dropped it, everyone would have watched like the four or five most popular and then not bothered with any of the others. And I think they did a very deliberate parceling out in that way. Which I was, think it was a smart fucking move because they oh, paid yeah. a lot of money for this and they want to make sure it's gonna be used. And also that's how I would recommend these kind of movies. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna piecemeal these motherfuckers to you because otherwise you're just gonna binge on the on the desserts. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not gonna <laughs> eat your fucking starter. I certainly love all of the, the the stuff that I've seen and um 
it's it's one of those studios where I'm like, I should go back and I should watch everything, including the stuff that's only, like we said, tangentially related. So, you know, the Red Turtle and and things like that. There's a YouTuber uh, called Okada who does a thing called Glass Reflection. He's a big anime uh, reviewing thing. He's a, he's a Canadian dude. And he very famously, as he's mentioned many times, anytime a new uh, thing is announced, he always says, I haven't seen one Ghibli film. Uh, he watches all of them, but he's a, it just came about that he hadn't, much probably like, like yourself, he's like, mm. oh yeah, I just haven't got around to seeing that one. And it was, it became such a thing, like, and it happens to be Porco Rosso, and he's like, I know people talk about it, I've seen the clips, but I haven't seen it. And now I'm actively not going to watch it. And everyone's like, why don't you watch it? He says, oh, I know I'll love it. I know it'll be an amazing experience. But I also know that one day, the original, shall we say, founders, and this I think was recorded before Takahata Maven died, mm. I said, when they're gone, there's only going to be, you know, replicas and new wave Ghibli mm. and whatever that comes next. So this will be my last sort of time capsule piece of these kind of movies in their purest form. So it's the last time I'll have an opportunity to watch, in inverted commas, a new Ghibli film. So like yourself, I, I kind of understand that logic of like, I'll get around to it and then go, ah, I'm, I'm glad I waited for this. I'm, I, I, yeah. I was right to space it out. And also because I'm a basic bitch, like a lot of the stuff that I've seen is the lighter, fluffy affair. And it's like, you've got to be in the right mood to put down, put on Grave of the Fireflies. Like I haven't seen it, but I know its reputation. <laughs> and I know that if I'm yep, just like, yeah, what do I want to yeah. watch today? Oh, yeah, let's throw that on. I'm just going to end yeah. up either not enjoying it because I'm not in the right mood and and therefore kind of do almost doing a disservice to the film. I'm going to supremely bum myself out uh, and and not be not be prepared mentally for well, it. There are definitely certain directors like that in general. So, for example, we'll probably come back to this one day, a director showdown on one of our live streams, but Darren Aronofsky. You can't just go, crack on a fucking Aronofsky yes. movie. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I have to prepare myself for what's about to happen. Whether I like it or not, it's going to be a case of like... Some Classic shit's going to go Sunday afternoon viewing, right? <laughs> yeah, you just... Just, just crack open a can of Aronofsky and you'll be Have you done all fine. your homework, kids? Yeah. Should we put on a movie? Yeah. We're going to watch Noah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> fuck. Pie. <laughs> Pie. Get these numbers out of my head. I'll drill them out. It's like, Jesus Christ. Why are you crying, children? Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're watching The um, Fountain after this. Yeah. That makes nice. Oh, different kind of crying. What about you, Jack? You're a big old weeb. Oh, coming from you, Stogden. Jeez, that's what I'm saying. I know when I see him. Takes one to know one. Yeah, I'm trying to think which one I saw first, actually. It might have been Kiki's Delivery Service way back when. That obviously came out before I was born, but I I <laughs> saw it, I think, after Spirited Away came out. So I would have been 10 when Spirited Away came out. Mm. I definitely didn't see it when I was 10. I saw these... I think I only became really aware of Ghibli when I was probably in my teens, probably university sort of time, that mm. sort of thing. So, um, it's, and... the, it's the classic sort of time to discover it, unless your parents are like oh, yeah. of the kind of like, yeah, we're going to sit our kid down and make them watch Spirited Away. They are the kind of films you come to. I, I know Matt would. Matt, Matt's yeah, going to sit down that. and make we them know. watch Aronofsky. I, I feel sorry for your children already. Yeah, it's called future. Tetsuo. <laughs> I know you're only four. Tetsuo, body hammer. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Um, but yeah, it's the kind of uh, you get to a certain point in life where you're like, yeah, I'll watch this Japanese film that's you know a little mm. bit surreal, or it, it deals in folklore that is how I have no frame of reference for. <laughs> yeah, weirdly enough, I saw Akira when I was far too young to understand what the fuck was going on, and I think that was my 
complete introduction to anime apart from like growing up with Dragon Ball Z and stuff like that. Oh yeah. So watching Toonami and having Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z <laughs> and all that kind of stuff was it didn't really occur to me that it was all the same thing. You're not really aware that oh all this stuff comes from Japan and there are different animation studios. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's cartoons. Oh, I'm an idiot. I don't know what's going on. I'm fucking 12 years old, you know? <laughs> yeah, but we also thought like Banana Man, which is a very British cartoon, is the exact same thing as Masters of the Universe. And it's like, nah, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Basically the same. Um, but yeah, I think my introduction was, I think the first one I saw was Kiki's Delivery Service. And my girlfriend at the time was absolutely obsessed with something I'll get onto later on. There's a little tease for your listeners. Ponyo. Mm. I still don't know why. Ponyo loves ham. Ham! <laughs> loves ham. Um, and I have seen Ponyo like a dozen times because we had the DVD of it and we watched it on repeat because <laughs> we were teenagers. What the fuck I was going to say, that, yeah, that, that's a classic, you know, how we, are, we usually have our introduction to Disney because of our sort of age. Um, as kids, like, well, I had this Disney video, therefore it's my favorite because I watched it ninety fucking times. Yeah, exactly. And when you're a teenager, yeah. I've just got into anime and and uh, Studio Ghibli. We have three because they're really fucking expensive, and I've yeah. watched them all ninety <laughs> fucking times. And, and weirdly enough, with Ponyo specifically, it introduced me to. And like I said, I'll go into more detail on Ponyo later on. We'll we'll have our own picks, and we'll go into a bit more detail later on, listeners, as we usually do on these interseason episodes. But it introduced me to the concept of subs and dubs so having a japanese oh. audio with english subtitles and there's also an option to have english voice actors and i've mentioned before things like um i always is it brotherhood of the wolf the french werewolf yes, french movie french yeah mm-hmm. I, I brought it up a, a little while ago on the show mm, i was like, like why is that french movie with the subtitles and stuff that was the first film i saw where i actually went like oh my god they're speaking French. I understand them. I can read the subtitles <laughs> and watch the film at the same time. <laughs> I'm like, nice. Uh, it unlocked like international cinema for me in my brain. Yeah. Like, I didn't know my brain could do two things at once. This is amazing. <laughs> and then my dad was like, right, here's Akira Kurosawa. And that was my introduction to Japanese yes. cinema. My dad was just like, we watched all the Westerns. Now learn about Japanese Westerns. <laughs> okay. Johnny Chambers, hero of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I definitely saw Spirited Away. I saw, uh, like I said, I saw Ponyo, Princess Mononoke, all the big ones you've probably heard of, listeners. Those are the kind of things I started with. And then I went and did some research because the internet was a thing back then. And I was just like, huh. Well, there's like 20 other ones. Are they all by the same person? How does this work? And discovered, as you mentioned earlier, Matt, Four founding members, three active kind of directors that carry on yeah. through the 90s to the 2000s, all this kind of stuff. And learning that Hayao Miyazaki is one of them. Um, and then, as you said, almost everyone is introduced by a Miyazaki film. He is like, when you think of Ghibli, that's who you think of in terms of the face of the company, the most famous films and all this kind of stuff. And then you learn about Takahata's work and like, oh, oh, this is a different ball game. This is a different <laughs> thing. This is, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. I've seen most of them at this point. I think I'm missing four or five out of the 26, I think it is, 25, whatever it is. I've seen the vast majority of them because I absolutely have loved basically everything I've seen. Uh, I've seen a few of them at the cinema. I went to see The Wind Rises at the cinema, at Cinema City here in Norwich, funny enough. They did like a, a short run of it. Uh, had a great time. Um, 
is it when Marnie was there that is sort of based on some Norfolk geography and stuff, and there was a tie to Norfolk, and that was shown at Cinema City as well, I think, and sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's based on an English novel, isn't it? Like a it classic. is. Yeah. It's, um... yes. Uh, Robinson, isn't it? Uh, yes, John, Robinson. Uh, John Joan Robinson, yeah. Um, yeah. And that has some ties to Norfolk, mm. so it was like this. So if if when Marnie was there, the novel is set in Norfolk, we can justify it having it at our cinema as like a cultural thing. <laughs> I'm like, there you go. So I've seen yeah. a couple of them at the cinema, you know, five, mm. six years ago, whatever it sure. was. Um, but yeah, pretty much all of them I've seen, I've loved, and I'm only missing a few. Matt, I assume you've seen every single thing that Ghibli has put out. Is that yeah, safe to say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I put an image on uh, Instagram, must have been a couple of months ago, and said, I've finally done it. I've completed the Ghibli collection on Blu-ray. Now all I need to do is buy new ones. Now this is, again, I sort of mentioned this earlier. I'll just track on this for a second. Japan is still really heavy into physical media and physical stuff. So, mm. for example, I remember buying a figure and I was like, why is this being reduced to like a thousand yen from three thousand yen? It's like basically like thirty dollars to ten. Like, That's crazy. It looks mint condition. It's like, oh, no, no. You see the box is slightly damaged. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Mm -hmm. In England, you might get a pound off of that and a stern look. <laughs> that, you know, obviously they pride themselves on things like that. But CDs still sell for like 10, 15 quid. Um, and because... Uh, when you release things like like a Gundam set and a Blu-ray, it's like oh, it's 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 one series, fifty episodes, and that's the whole thing. It's like, oh great, you mean kind of like if I were watching Breaking Bad, I can get all of them for like, you know, thirty pounds. Like, yeah, yeah, kind of like that. Well, how much is how much is a one Gundam series? Uh, you mean for like both parts? It comes in parts. Yeah, just two parts. Okay, fine. How much is that? Like eighty pound. Eighty fucking pound <laughs> for one of them for a, for a fucking the forty episode cartoon from the from the nineties. Yes. Is there anyone else that sells differently? No, because it all comes from Japan and they control the price and they have a literal monopoly on it. It's like, shit! So Ghibli films, notoriously, are always £15 on Blu-ray in this country and have been that way for nearly two decades. <laughs> they do not go down in price. You may get them where they're two for £25 sort of thing. That is it. Like Nintendo games. Very much Never so. on uh, sale. But, yeah, like the Disney Vault in a way. It's like, you know, what, mm. what used to be like, you get it and then it's gone. But these, uh, these things are always here, but they never got in front. So me acquiring this thing is, 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 it's what I'm saying. Like on the whole, on, mm. they're on, they're on Netflix. Make fucking use of that. Take advantage of that if you can. Um, because when they do leave again, it's going to be expensive to watch them again. And when you have something that you're like, oh, like my neighbor, the Yamadas, my, sorry, my neighbors, the Yamadas is a great example. I'll come back to that later, but it's one of those ones people go, Ah, I don't know if I'll get onto this. And I know Tales from Earthsea is not very well, you know, received. But I might need my collection to be complete, so here's £30. <laughs> You're like, fucking hell. What, what was your last one that you acquired, by the way? The final one, I believe... I think it was when Rani was there. Um, because I specifically was going back and buying stuff in bulk. So it was a case of handful of things, but that was one of the ones that was the last one for me to get, mm -hmm. uh, which is effectively the most recent one, other than Earwig and the Witch was just coming out this year and it's not available on Blu-ray and blah, blah. <laughs> um, but just, just, just for the audience purpose here, this is going to be very probably a little bit annoying. I'm going to whip through some, just, just some names because I think we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but there's not that many of them. So I'm just going to literally list them all in one go. <laughs> so we know what we're referring to. And then you know roughly the order of these things release. 
So in order, in order of release. In order of release. Right, okay. Um, good, then we can do them one at a time. Then rather than just me, me speaking, we'll, go, we'll bounce around, have one of us say in one each. It'd be, it'd be nice. We'll, we'll include the first two being the Castle of Cagliostro and Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Just to be polite, shall we say. So those two, then Castle in the Sky or Laputa, Castle in the Sky. Then in 1988, we have both, as Matt mentioned, Grave of the Fireflies, which is uh, uh, Isio Takahata, and My Neighbor Totoro, which is directed by uh, Hayao Miyazaki. Following up in 1989, I mentioned it earlier, my first Ghibli film, Kiki's Delivery Service. 1991, Only Yesterday. Uh, 1992, Porco Rosso. 93, one I haven't seen, Ocean Waves. 1994, Pompoco. Uh, 95, Whisper of the Heart. Now the famous one in 1997, Princess Mononoke. 1999, My Neighbours, The Yamadas. Uh, 2001, the big famous one, Spirited Away. 2002, The Cat Returns. 2004, Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, 2006, Tales from Earthsea. Another one I've already mentioned, and I'll be talking about later on. <laughs> 2008's Ponyo. 2010's Arietti. 2011, From Up on Poppy Hill. 2013's The Wind Rises and The Tale of Princess Kaguya. And 2014's When Marnie Was There. And that's the top 20. <laughs> and there's obviously one called Earwig and the Witch this year. And How Do You Live eventually coming out? Maybe in a year in or two? The next, we'll see, yeah, we'll a few years or so. Hopefully yeah. that's another... That's, Hayao Miyazaki, because we now need to differentiate between we do, we do. Hayao Miyazaki and his son... Goro Miyazaki, and yeah, their awkward relationship. There's some behind-the-scenes <laughs> there, stuff. There's that for the really famous clip. I know we're going to get into the film today, but there's that really <laughs> famous clip of Hayao Miyazaki, who is known to be a bit of a dick and a grumpy perfectionist, basically. Mm, yeah. And I, I don't even know which one of his son, Goro Miyazaki's films, he went to see. But it, it, I think it was Goro's first directed... It was Tales of Mercy, give, yeah. It was Tales of Mercy, okay, yeah. So 2006, bear in mind, Goro Miyazaki in 2006 is nearly 40? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like he's like, oh, it's his first ever directed film. He's 19, that kind of stuff. You know, it's not like some <laughs> kid doing his first project. The dude is nearly 40. And Miyazaki is like, hmm. Miyazaki being... Miyazaki Sr., hey, was like, Mm, yes, I'll, maybe I'll rewatch this and revisit this with him when he's a man or something like that. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> he's nearly 40, for fuck's sake. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the opposite he, he of Max Landis. Like <laughs> exactly, exactly. He, he, I remember he had an interview, he was talking about the making of, I think it was from Up on Poppy Hill, which God of Miyazaki also made. And he was like, no, you're not getting it. And he... There's a, there's a, I think I'm pretty sure it was that film because it's talking about how this girl character is going to run across a bridge essentially, and he goes outside and has a cigarette and grumps about it and says, "There's no life in it. There's no personality. It's nothing. It's nothing." She just walks. It's nothing. And he says, "Do this. She skips. She jumps. She has a personality. This should be normal. You should know this. This is a thing you should understand." And it's like, oh my god, he is murdering this kid. <laughs> um, and it's it's again this kid this... being a forty year old man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's the it's it is the thing of and as and again, you know the, the, this forty year old man Goro he just gets so despondent and this is the this is the interesting thing here because every time you see Hayao Miyazaki he's always a big smiling huge cheery figure 
Put big, on this big white beard, big yeah. glasses, like floppy white hair. The daddy yeah, of he, Ghibli. He's 80 years old, is Hayao Miyazaki. Like, he's yeah. a lovely Japanese granddad, right? Yeah. No, he's mm. a fucking... He's, he's, a, he's a shrewd Japanese businessman who happens to be well, a yeah. art and a perfectionist. <laughs> so he's going to be a fucking Kubrick. He's a bit of a psycho. Um, but again, his work is fantastic and lauded and, and it doesn't give him the right to be a bit of a prick. But also it's like, <laughs> yeah, he does have a point though. See, inter- have no life. interestingly enough, I I don't know if this is the thing from being on Tumblr, but I I associate him with there's <laughs> there's like a a series of like uh, clips of him from like behind the scenes stuff where it's him working on stuff of his yeah. own and it's just him going like it's not fucking working I don't I why am I why am I an artist this is terrible I and like getting really despondent with his own work and frustrated and being like. Yeah. No, I can't draw today. I'm going to go have a cigarette and I'm fuck it. I'll do it tomorrow. Um <laughs> so my association with Hayao Miyazaki is just kind of like yeah, it never gets easier if you're if you're an artist. You 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 are still you you can be an Oscar winning like scion of this one of the most respected animation studios in the world and you're mm. still going to be sitting there looking at something you've drawn and going, "Why the fuck what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he, there are so many examples you can write. You think, just little quotes where these things like, I feel this was a mistake. And then if this film is no good, everything will be a waste. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in a rut. Ah, oh, that's life. Is it a pain, a pain, such a pain? <laughs> and it's like, Jesus, man, I, I fucking feel that. It's, <laughs> it's in my bones. Um, but that's just, again, that's, that's artists. That's what they're fucking like, unfortunately. Um, and they make this great work. The problem is when you work with your family, you end up with like, ooh, mm. yeah. There are a handful of individuals, as Jack mentioned, who who created this company, and a lot of people who return in terms of animation, music, etc., etc., etc. But the two everyone thinks of is Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki. There's obviously uh, Mochizuki and Kondor and Morita and Yonibashi, uh, but sorry, Yonibashi. But the point is that although they have their hand and they make these things and they're impressive. It's really those two founding fathers, as it were, in the same way that, you know, in the American Constitution, it was written by multiple people. But there are a handful of people who really wrote it or really involved. There's some real names that keep cropping up effectively because they made it that way. They ensured history remembered it that way, that kind of thing, you know, legacy shit. And it felt like looking back over them, that Miyazaki would make the stuff that people would want to see and Takahata would make the stuff people would appreciate later. And every time the studio was going somewhere, Takahata would make a movie that would nearly sink the company. Um, <laughs> and ha- Miyazaki would have to come effectively out of retirement each time and go, oh, Mendoxai, and have to make another fucking movie. Um, and then it was like, oh, don't worry, there's the next generation of these kids who will take over. Oh, fuck me, they're all terrible. I hate all these <laughs> fucking people. And then they start forming other studios, rival studios, because working for Ghibli is like working at, for Disney, effectively, like it was in the, in, in the past. Where it's like, is the Disney way or no way? Mm. And it's like, well, I get it because you're a very profitable and successful company, but also I kind of want to do some new challenging things. No, you're not doing that. And equally, as an audience member, people say, oh, I know a Ghibli film when I see one. And then I watch a Takahata movie or something like, I don't know, um, one of the more recent stuff by, by Goro Miyazaki, like say Earwig and the, and the Witch and go, Nah, it's not Ghibli, is it? It's like, well, it literally is. Or, or then, like you said, some of the spin-offs, or you watch like Mary yeah, and the Witch's yeah. Flower, which is Studio Ponok, which is yeah, that's right. the spin-off company that um, Yoshiaki Nishimura 
But mm-hmm. after he had a huge falling out with Miyazaki That's and right. a couple of the other guys, right. he went, fuck you, I'm leaving. And this was like uh, mid-2010s, I think, like 2015, 2016. 2016 I, yeah. yeah, I think it was around about the time Ariati came out by uh, Hiramasa Yanebashi, who, who mm. directed it. And again, as you say, Nishimura was there as well. And they were like, you know what? Fuck you. We're making our own goddamn company and we're going to do the exact same thing you do and it'll be a huge success. Yeah. Because Blackjack Nishimura... and Lucas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Nishimura produced when Marnie was there and it's like mm. seeing uh, like Toshio Suzuki is also one of the key figures in the early days in the early 90s. He's the guy that uh, like produced a lot of Miyazaki's early stuff. So uh, Porco Rosso and... Princess Mononoke and all this kind of stuff. Like he was very instrumental. He was one of the founders as well. And then they brought in more and more producers that mm. kind of then had different ideas and different visions. And as we know, we talk about a lot on sequelizers. The mm-hmm. more producers you get involved, mm-hmm. the more problems you're going to have. The more you know, more chefs spoil the broth kind of thing. You get all these different, you know, big-headed directors who have this vision, and then a producer comes in and they start clashing, and then all this kind of stuff. Nishimura had a big clash with, I think it was with Takahata and with Miyazaki in the end of it, told them both to fuck off and went and formed his own <laughs> studio. Yeah. And when you look at Mary and the Witch's Flower, it looks like a Studio Ghibli film. <laughs> like, Very much if, so. if you didn't know better, it's a Ghibli film with like the, the, like the young but uh, intelligent female protagonist, which is a huge kind of theme for Miyazaki. And something we'll certainly be talking about in a bit more detail later on as well. It's so ghibli in its presentation, like even coming from like the same composer who did when Marley was there, <laughs> did the soundtrack for Mary and the Witch's Flower as well. He took all these people that he worked with on some of the films he produced mm. and was like, fuck you, we're leaving. And we're basically just going to do your films, but, but different. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it was really successful. It was one of the big highest grossing films of that year I liked in it. Japan. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's decent, but mm. it, it's like, does it reach the heights? You're, you're, compete, you're competing uh, with Japanese Disney, literally. Yeah. That's and the does, thing. But, but does it reach the heights of old Ghibli? No. Contemporary Ghibli? Yeah, fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because Takahata was there from the beginning. It feels like he was the person who was allowed to say, like, no, I have my own distinct vision and it's not it's not what you want to do, but, you know that does you know we don't we don't have to be a monolith as a studio and then when he passed and you know uh, and there was a generation who had essentially grown up watching studio ghibli films and were influenced by it and then came up through those ranks and were more were less equals and were more subordinates the the kind of the og people whether they were you know directors or producers or or whatever positions they were could influence a lot more could could exercise a lot more influence on them and say no we have a way of doing it and if you don't like the way that we're doing it then you can fuck off (laughs) which obviously some people are going to do and other people are going to bend to that and go like well okay um and unfortunately that's how you end up with a you know often slightly more derivative products because you're 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 people just kind of then replicating what you've seen before rather than innovating which is yeah you know what they did at the beginning and what Takahata was kind of free to do and and to produce stuff that wasn't going to be like what Hayao Miyazaki was making. Um, mm. It's a studio, not a person. You can yeah. do, even as a director, you can do different projects. Mm. You don't have to be bound to the same thing in the same way that Disney 
had the same sort of circling and stifling like oh we're just gonna do the same we've always done it's like we need to get away from this and they did in a different capacity and then went back to what they thought was a classic disney thing of fairy tales and stuff mm. in, the, in the resurgence in the 80s and 90s, well late 80s early 90s and i think like, ah now disney's good again that kind of thing i think i think there's a real parallel with pixar as well of oh, that's very true that initial surge of creativity and producing stuff that was unlike what a lot of people had seen before and really mm. pushing the boundaries and then slightly settling into a groove of you have the established people who just want to do the thing that they've been doing and keep doing that. And they are also stifling the people who are coming up by saying like, no, we have a style. You have to stick to the style. And I think yeah. Pixar seems like it's starting to move beyond that now, having got rid of some influences that we also know were negative Toxic. in a lot of other ways yeah. uh, and and stuff like that. And it will be interesting to see like how will studio ghibli continue like will it work in this mold will it will it try and innovate and do st different stuff um i think it's an adapt or die because mm. at the end of the day the name and the brand is huge people will watch it because it's a ghibli film um but that has a lifespan that has a limit uh there's obviously ghibli part with ghibli merchandise but let's face it when people buy ghibli merch they buy a totoro figure or a cat bus which again is the same movie in 1988. Yeah. That's not, yeah, no one's buying fucking Tales of Mercy merch. And what's. Hey, I've got some, I've got some Kiki's delivery service merch. That's, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. But that's still the 90s. I've, I've um, got a yeah. Gigi and Lily little uh, calendar that I've got. I have a little Gigi as well, actually. But yeah. not the point. So the, the thing is that, it, that when you have this stuff, you have not necessarily rivals, but as Tim mentioned earlier, people have grown up with this. And the forming of other studios like. Uh, you've got Studio Shizu, who um, uh, basically it's, it's, it's Mamoru Hosoda's company, and he's done Wolf Children and The Boy and the Beast, Mirai and, and Bell next year, this year, I think it is. And those things are like 90 plus percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and they are fucking stone cold classics after working with Madhouse to make uh, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And then you have, um, is it uh, Comics? Um, comics Wave. Comics Wave films, thank you very much, yeah. And Comics Wave films are another big hitter now because if you think of some of the biggest animated films of late you start with things like oh i've heard uh, five centimeters apart uh sorry five five centimeters per second is pretty good and uh the garden of words that was a great little short sort of 50 minute long that's good and well, then your name i was gonna say the big one, with you. We, yeah. we've we've talked about your name on uh what we've yeah, watched we recently have. funnily enough i brought it up uh for patrons so you can go and listen to that and yeah it's that kind of thing where it's not, you know, you kind of forget that anime on TV and anime on the big screen are two separate things. And then Ghibli is another separate thing altogether. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're so separate in my brain of like, oh yeah, you can watch One Punch Man or My Hero Academia or Attack on Titan or Demon Slayer and all this kind of stuff. And they have their own movies, sure. Like Demon Slayer movie came out recently, mm -hmm. Demon Slayer Mugen Train. You've had the My Hero Academia movies and all that kind of stuff. But having these standalone things like your name, um, like Weathering With You, all this kind of stuff, like they stand out so much. And your name was unbelievably critically acclaimed and it grossed yeah. insane amounts of money for a Japanese movie yeah. and suddenly like completely took over the world. And it did a bit it, of a spirited away and it's like people yeah, who don't usually exactly. watch it say, oh, I wonder why everyone's making such a fuss. Oh my God, this is beautiful. This is a stunning thing to see in the cinema and hopefully at home and things like that. And you're right, that that presence becomes not just this one small Japanese studio, it becomes, you know, there are lots of these things, right? 
oh, really? And you open up a very, not necessarily a, 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 a door to another world, but a trap door to a pit. And you just keep falling forever <laughs> through anime. <laughs> and interestingly, there's also Satoshi Kon's films. Oh, Christ, yeah. Which mm -hmm. feel like they could have been a whole other little kind of prestige easily pocket easily. had he not tragically died so young you know um and already kind of were this little very different form of kind of prestige adult much more serious anime that that like we say is, is not connected to tv shows and is not connected to the established kind of studios mm. I, again i it was a patreon episode we did i think uh um, scariest films or scariest moments on mm. films and I talk about Perfect Blue the Satoshi Kon animated movie so again patrons go check it out people who haven't been on Patreon consider it it's good <laughs> and you can get tons and tons of content but anyway shilling aside mm. yeah the, the, again it's like oh again I, I, I really enjoyed My Neighbor Totoro it was really sweet Perfect Blue you say oh fuck <laughs> oh god I don't know what's real anymore <laughs> just, just to cover this again this is what makes Ghibli kind of stand out because as much as we say, like, you know, Shizu and Comics Wave and Ponok and all these other bits and pieces, there is a, I don't know if it's a seal of quality, but it's very much a personality presence. And you can definitely tell a Ghibli film, at least the early stuff, because mm. it's so heavily, um, heavily influenced. And there are obviously similar properties. You go, oh yeah, this is very Ghibli-esque, but you can usually tell because of the subject matter, because of how it's being presented and because of the the sort of audience it's targeting and subtly targeting shall we say but for those who don't know for those who just sort of like think oh no i don't really have a shit about anime but i'll listen because you know you guys are talking about it that kind of thing it's it's a tricky one i i recently i was on the um unequal sequel podcast talking about shin godzilla among other things and just talking about how that film is very much targeted to a japanese audience and if you don't understand japanese bureaucracy and how they deal with things it's very hard to understand what the film is doing, unlike Parasite, which won the Oscar partly because it is so very open to international interpretation because of the simple structure of rich and poor, easy divide. That's it. That's the whole movie. Whereas if you're watching something like Pompoko, you have to go, right. So I, I know we're calling them raccoons for the purpose of this translation, <laughs> but they're actually Tanuki. And in Japanese tradition, Tanuki had these giant testicles. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yes, and they can make, they can shapeshift into different things because they're a wily little cunning creature. Uh, okay. And they use their testicles. It's like, uh, what? What? <laughs> they can make parachutes and fly with them. What the fuck are you talking about? So we'll call them pouches rather than ball bags, but it's their ball bags. And this is for kids? Yeah, it's for kids. Uh, talking about the kind of the commonalities that they have between them, I remember seeing a thing, uh, this would have been ages ago, it was, it was, it was sort of one of these, uh, you know, oh, you know, Shora's... Uh, Sure as eggs is eggs, sure as the sun will rise in the morning, sure as every Studio Ghibli film will have that bit that you don't understand but makes you kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, and I that think that's that, right. That's a weird commonality running through them where you're like, yeah, they're, 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 they just kind of uh, took this train journey out across the water and I didn't really understand what was going on, but it just, it just filled me with this melancholy and made me think about my life. I, I genuinely feel that is something about international releases and it's something that english language cinema has had an impact on that people don't seem to understand because obviously it's used their first language and that is that the early days of cinema 
were done as expressionistic stuff, sometimes the sort of sort of animated segment, shall we say, and music. The way that this has been handled since eighty four, arguably since seventy nine, with Castle because Castle Cagliostro is a really fun, you know, uh, adventure romp about Lupin the Third, Lupin, and it's just you know, it, it informed like how. Steven Spielberg does certain chase sequences, for example. Mm. Like it's, it's masterfully directed. Very, very good. But Norsica Valley of the Wind, 1984. This has been going as long as I have. First sort of outing, it gets more serious. But there's that typical Japanese focus that you get a lot, which is nature versus modernism, as it were, versus progression of society. The, the, the clash between the natural world and the developed world of man, shall we say. Which is what the industrial era had in Britain as well. So if you look at old poems from like Wordsworth and shit like that, it's it, or, or like the difference between like Thomas Hardy and Charles Dickens, it's the dangers of the city, how it will, you know, cover you in smog and corrupt your children, go back to the countryside, blah, 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 blah. But it's in Japan, there's always a sense of, of awareness, shall we say, or at least a respect for nature. And that very much is a presence in most, if not all, of uh, the Ghibli films. And it's that sort of driving force for most of them, as well as the idea of the past and childhood and remnants and things, that you sort of don't need to know the full details, arguably, because the real the heavy lifting is done by the really evocative animation and the music, which is the same thing Disney does when you're a child. I don't know what this is all about, I don't know what themes you're going on with, but I understand that that big scary dragon needs to take a fucking sword to the face because I'm scared of it, and I hope someone's going to ride <laughs> along and save it. Yes, problem solved. And much like you know the old folklore, the old tradition, the old stories tell stories that we grew up on in in, in Britain and Europe and stuff. Um, th- there's a sort of underlying theme. We don't get the nuance of it possibly, but from, through the music and the animation, my face is wet. I'm crying for some reason. I don't know why, <laughs> but, I, but I, I I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and I think you touched on the themes there that a lot of these films explore. There's a lot of commonality especially mm. with the themes that Miyazaki needs, likes to talk about. There's a very clear anti-war theme through many yes. of these. We've touched yes. on Grave of the Fireflies. You talk on The Wind Rises. I mean, even going through to basically everything he's ever done, talking about like <laughs> in- industrialism, destroying nature and all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. And the, you know, the military industrial complex, like tanks literally rolling over forests and mm. Mononoke being a perfect example of nature fighting back and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Like, there's very clear themes there that are pretty universal, really, when you think about, um, you know, the, the world and politics and all that kind of stuff. But they're often things that aren't particularly expressed in a lot of Western cinema because, not to call out the Americans and the Brits, <laughs> we are quite pro-war. Yeah, we, <laughs> we're, we, we, we're, we ki- we're kind of known for starting wars and and winning wars and talking about how great the war was and all this kind of bullshit, and we still reference that stuff. 80 fucking years later. Yeah. I was like, yeah, we won the war. Like, what have you done lately? You've started all the other fucking wars. <laughs> yeah, that's like, the key thing. Like five different separate wars just in Iraq alone. Like, yeah. y- y- we talk about the war and we don't really think about three different Gulf Wars. And Americans love to think about Vietnam. Like, oh, I'm a Vietnam vet. It's like, probably shouldn't have been there in the first place, though. And And the fact that you have the Japanese perspective, which obviously... They are on the for a better phrase, the wrong side yeah. for the for the Second World War. You really get an interesting take on Miyazaki, who is well known as a pacifist, and him talking about how his experiences. You know, I said he's eighty years old. He was born in nineteen twenty nineteen forty one. So mm-hmm. it's like yeah. 
He was right at the tail end of the Second World War, so he born knows post Pearl Harbor. Exactly. Exactly. He's born in January of 1941, like literally. And you really put that into perspective, like him growing up in post-war Japan makes so much sense for his outlook and mm-hmm. the themes and so many of his character decisions and all that kind of stuff in his films over the last 40 years or so. It suddenly all kind of clicked into place for me of like, right, yeah, of course. If you're born in the 40s in Japan, you're going to have a very unique outlook on war and conflict and all this kind of stuff. And thinking about like concentration camps and mm. the Japanese prison camps were notoriously bad. And, you know, people have talked about like being Japanese people in America at the time and all this kind of stuff. There's campus, so many, yeah. exactly, so many different sides to that horrible time in history. Yeah. And having his perspective on that and him talking about different themes of war, um, is it Howl's Moving Castle that he talked, he had it as like an anti-war thing because of, it obviously is an anti-war thing because of yes. the whole, the bombs at the end and that whole thing and like the the, the warring kingdoms the book, and stuff. I think, yeah. Yes. Um, he basically had that as a reaction to the Iraq war in the early 2000s. Yeah. So like the Gulf War stuff that was happening, he was like, I need to say something about this. and. I'm going to do it with a giant bird man and a walking castle. So <laughs> Get me Christian Bale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're, you're right, of course. And the thing is with Japan, uh, and this is the thing, uh, people just assume, oh, Matt, you must love Japan. You must wish you were Japanese. Fuck no, I've read Japanese history, you fucking idiot. <laughs> I know how bad it was. British history is fucking awful enough as it is, thank you. Mm. Um, Japan was doing awful shit because they were isolationists for so long, just warring with themselves, then finally forced by basically America, Britain, and a few other people, to open up their borders. And they went, oh, well, what do you guys do? Or we just invade other countries, like, you know, in Africa and stuff, and we harvest all their materials. That sounds like a really fucking good idea. Let's go to Korea. Let's go to China. Let's completely ravage that fucking place. And it's like, oh, shit. That's awful. The difference between what Japan was doing in China and what we were doing in Africa is Japan got caught and we were on China's side. And that was kind mm. of it, really. And then obviously the war happened, yada, 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 and alliances and things. The difference is contemporary Japan is a very strange place because it's one of the few places to ever have an atomic bomb dropped on it twice um, as an actual in-conflict kind of thing, to, to, as an example of not to do it, even though they, I think the official story is they actually surrendered and America said, well, we got this bomb, we need to show about Russia, they can fuck off, so we're going to drop it mm. anyway, bugger it. Yeah. Pretend we didn't hear what you said. Do it, try it, anything. And then afterwards, part of the, and it's the classics, you know, you know post-war, post-World War One, post-World War Two. right, now we're divvying up all the property. Now we're saying who owns what. And we're going to really hammer it to you fuckers because we've gone out of money and someone has to pay for this. And Treaty of Versailles sort of shit. You end up with like, you know, how are we going to do this? And you end up stoking more resentment. And the interesting way they do it with Japan is, right, we're going to occupy your land until the 50s. There'll be no nationalistic stuff. No talking about your history and heritage. So the Japanese cinema was very strange. Then it go, they find, and then Yakuza start appearing. So, you know, the classic like mafia style organized crime to look out for the community kind of to keep the americans away sort of thing and then they leave and then finally the cinema industry starts booming and it's like oh god japan's an amazing place and the technology boom and yada 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 but they still aren't allowed a military they've been literally slapped on the wrist effectively in very you know simplistic terms and said you can have a national defense force sure but if you want to do anything you want to mobilize you have to ask america's permission first and it's like what and Japan being involved in like the Yugoslavian conflict. I'll come back to this later when I'm talking about Pocarosso. As more le- and, and Iraq as well, less observers. You can go in a war, but you can't fight. It's like, right. 
It's like, why not? Because you can't be trusted because you did Pearl Harbor. It's like, okay. Like, yeah, and you dropped two atomic bombs on us, motherfuckers. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, people yeah, want America to talk. A, America has a long memory for all the stuff that happened to them. Yeah. And yeah. Like, God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. Like, is it though? Yeah. Or is it just the worst thing that's happened to America in the last couple of years? Yeah. It's, not it's... to downplay 9 11 or anything, it's American no, 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 listeners. Because no, we're getting into very dangerous territory oh, here. <laughs> but, but like. It's... That no country is perfect. Nobody has had a no, history that's no, absolutely clean, not. But it gives you a very unique perspective when you're living in a certain time in a certain country, where, as you say, these two older men, Takata and Miyazaki, have grown up post-war in a very poor country where people are starving things, and then just want a nice, simple life where everything is normal. And then for some reason, you start crying and you don't know why, and you're like, "Oh yeah, this makes complete fucking sense now." Now you've told me yeah. these people are. So the later films, so they have less of a nuance. Like, who are these people going into this movie? Well, they were born in the 80s. Right, and that was pretty bad times. So obviously, 80s, 90s, 2020s, 2010s for Japan, I guess. Yeah, there's a couple of recessions. And coronavirus, obviously. It's like, but is it anything like, you know, <laughs> like surviving the end of World War II? No, I don't think they've ever experienced anything like that ever. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean your films are invalid. It just means your perspective isn't going to feel as hard-hitting, shall we say. And again, I'm not saying your art is only good because you suffer. But the art you create to get through that therapeutically can sometimes be exceptionally good. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just a promotion of wherever it's coming from, basically, and what you're trying to do with it. Um, but equally, if you want to keep going forward and want to keep changing and evolving, you need to change. Um, and we as audience members, as we will talk about later probably, mostly have a bit of a sort of rose-tinted. Oh, Ghibli's the best fucking studio in Japan. It's so good. You guys haven't seen a Ghibli film? Oh my god, you have to watch this, yeah. this, and this. Which films are you going to recommend? Well, obviously the older ones. Nothing that's... Anything for the last 15 years? I mean, maybe. That kind of thing. This week's episode is brought to you by Blinds.com. Because it's the summer, everybody. Despite the fact some of the recent weather in the UK has been a bit rainy and horrible. You mean torrential floods in London? I mean torrential floods in London, Matthew. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. But the sun has also been out. It has been record temperatures across the globe, probably due to global warming. Not exactly a good thing. <laughs> but the sun's out and the shades are in. And you can get your home summer ready with custom window treatments from blinds.com. You can get a high-end look without the high-end price with the most popular outdoor shades and transform your backyard into the perfect weekend oasis with light filtering shades that help block those nasty UV rays without obstructing your view. Blinds.com is offering up to 35% off everything right now, making it a breeze to upgrade any room in your home, indoors or outdoors. With over 25 million blinds sold and 35,000 five-star reviews, there's a reason why Blinds.com is the number one online retailer of custom window treatments in the entire world. Whether you do it yourself or have them handle the install from start to finish, Blinds.com makes ordering custom window treatments easy with free shipping and a 100% guaranteed perfect fit. Sunshine and barbecues are in the forecast, hopefully ignoring British weather and rain. <laughs> so now it's time to upgrade your backyard and window treatments with blinds.com today and enjoy your new view all summer long. If you go to the link in our show notes, you can get up to 35% off everything across the site. Like I said, click the link in the show notes. You can get up to 35% off everything at blinds.com. This week's episode is also sponsored by the wonderful Manscaped.com, 
who are without a doubt the best in men's below the waist grooming. Manscaped offer precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, including the three of us, the three sequelizers, trust Manscaped with our gentlemen's areas. And you can join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs, and you can get 20% off and free delivery if you use the code SEQUEL, that's S-E-Q-U-E-L, at manscaped.com. And Manscaped very kindly sent us the uh, perfect package for us. We have some lovely ball deodorant. We have some... So my, my, my nether regions are smelling absolutely delightful, as confirmed by my fiance. <laughs> She was she was very surprised at how nice it smelled. And I was like, hey, I'll take that. I'll take that. I, I was like, I was kind of hesitant. You know when you get that kind of product, you're like, hmm, is my partner going to care about this? And they were like, hmm, yeah, we'll see. I was like, actually, no, this this is an amazing product. It's a genuinely good scent, to be fair. Yeah, the, the, the light allows you to shave in the dark. I don't know why you want to shave in the dark, but you can. And it's also waterproof, so you can shave in the shower, which is my preferred way of shaving. Oh. I do a lot of my face shaving and now my nether shaving in the shower. It's very convenient. Mm. And then after the shower, get a little bit of the ball deodorant, get a bit of the, the revitalizer in there, tone up your balls a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic all-around care package for your gentleman's area that I very much appreciate. And I am smoother and nicer smelling than I've been in a very, very long time. So if you want to join the three of us and have immaculately groomed downstairs areas and fantastic smelling balls, you can go to manscaped.com and, like I said, get 20% off and free delivery if you use the code SEQUEL. That's S-E-Q-U-E-L, manscaped.com. Trust us, your balls will thank you. So we're going to talk about some specific Ghibli films now. We've kind of touched on the history and a lot of the creators and all that kind of stuff. Now we're going to delve into some of the more interesting stuff, some of our favourites. And uh, I'm going to kick off because I teased a couple of mine earlier. And one in particular that really, really stands out to me that I saw, I definitely didn't see when it came out. and We'll, we'll touch on that in a second. I must have seen it probably about a decade or so ago. Um, I had it on DVD. I think I still do somewhere. I want to talk about 2004's Howl's Moving Castle. Because that film is a goddamn masterpiece, in my opinion. Mm. I fucking love this movie. And uh, as I mentioned, strong anti-war themes, all good in my book. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps the, the, the most interesting thing to like a 19-year-old Jack at the time was, wait a minute, is that Christian Bale doing his <laughs> Batman voice before he was Batman? <laughs> oh my God, this film's the origin story of his Batman voice. Because when Howl, who is like this magician, wizard, sorcerer type dude, transforms into a big bird monster, he does the Batman voice <laughs> and he starts talking like this. And you're like, oh my God, it's the Batman voice before he was Batman. And that blew my mind. And then I learned to actually appreciate the rest of the film and how well-crafted and all that kind of stuff. But that was the initial inside for me when I like suddenly clicked. I'm like, well, it came out just before Batman Begins. <laughs> so this is the origin of that Batman voice. Or maybe he had like, already done some like screen tests and stuff for Batman. And that blew my mind. I love the idea that Chris Nolan's like, 
we need a voice when you're a big sort of winged character. I've already got one. <laughs> it's like, great. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you I get do- that? Don't ask. <laughs> I, d- I do wish that Bale had brought a bit of uh, Howl's like himbo energy across to, to his Bruce Wayne yeah, portrayal. That would have yeah. been nice. Yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's also a scarecrow you know, now I think about it. There's a living scarecrow, yeah. which is literally what happens in the Batman <laughs> Begins. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically Batman Begins, and that's why it's so good. <laughs> there, there's bombings at the... Oh, no, that's Dark Knight Rises with the bombing. <laughs> sorry. Um, but yeah, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you've ever listened to the show before, you heard me rant about it. I'm a voice acting nerd, and I absolutely love hearing different voice actors and, and understanding how this process works, going from especially the dubbing process going from Japanese to English voice actors and all this kind of stuff. So the voice acting in Howl's Moving Castle is fantastic, particularly, and we've talked about him before on this show, Billy fucking Crystal. Yes. (laughs) Billy Crystal as Calcifer is just incredible. He's channeling real like, um, um, something we'll touch on later, real Phil Hartman energy because he is just over-the-top craziness and oh, amazing. For those of you who don't know, he's like an anthropomorphic magic fire, literally a flame mm. come to life. And we, we find out later he's descended from a star, mm-hmm. um, which is a cool little origin story. And the shells of eggs. You get Exactly, yeah. And <laughs> you, you cook stuff with him as he's talking to you and he'll eat the leftovers, like the waste and stuff, and just go, nom, 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 and, and, and eat it all up. And you learn that Howl and his weird magical moving castle, funnily enough, this huge house on legs, essentially, that, that walks across the countryside, um, introduced him through Sophie, who is essentially a pretty normal, like, <laughs> young girl. And, oh no, wait, 90-year-old lady. There's a 90-year-old <laughs> lady in there as well. Like, Hold on a minute. So you think like, oh yeah, you, it's going to be a totally normal, like, you know, it's an anime, it's a young girl, there's a, there'll be some magic and stuff. And like, It gets weird real fast. <laughs> and it, it dives you like into the deep end of the weird stuff. And even though it's kind of like, like I said, the, the backdrop is all the kind of war stuff between the two kingdoms. Mm. For me, it really is about the chemistry between Howell and Sophie and understanding their relationship and then having Calcifer there and some of the other sort of like secondary characters around them and uh, the evil oh what's the what's the bad guy's name it's like the witch um, of the wastes is yeah, that witch it? Of the waste, yeah. yes yeah yeah the witch of the wastes um and having all that kind of stuff happening in the background <laughs> is a brilliant way to tell a story about howl and him dealing essentially with his animalistic side for want of a better phrase well, in a very literal sense in a very like how he has to fight back against this war somehow and the war is coming to him and his castle whether he likes it or not he is caught almost literally between mm. this conflict between these two nations and he's essentially trying to live this peaceful life and just chilling out in his walking castle and stuff but basically he needs to get involved or they're going to come through and destroy him and as i mentioned he transforms into a big bird monster and essentially that is his kind of like him fighting back against it is trying to be this big bird monster to fight fire with fire, essentially. And you learn that the more he does it, 
the less likely he is to come back to his human form. And like the the anger and the the rage and stuff starts taking over him and he becomes more and more monstrous as the film goes on. Unsurprisingly, this is all a metaphor for <laughs> young people being stuck and dragged into war and anger and rage becoming a fuel for them to like, yeah, I'll fight for my country. Yeah, fuck right. those other guys. Like, have you, ever, have you ever spoken to those other guys? Do you know anything about them? Like, no, but fuck them. I'm angry for some reason. And the fact that it tells those like cleverest those clever little twists and those little stories that, like I said, when I watched it, I was like, oh, cool, it's Batman, but anime, this is great. And then you watch it a couple more times where you really pay attention, you kind of know what you're going in for, which I hope, listeners, I'm purposefully not spoiling it, by the way. <laughs> for those of you going into it and, and seeing it for the first time, you're now aware of those themes and you can actually enjoy that on the first viewing, if that makes sense. And being able to understand the themes and the ideas that Miyazaki and the actors are then exploring through the script and through the animation. Also that castle is like the coolest looking thing. Oh, it's so good. Just take the poster, like the, the big poster is literally just the castle just stood in this like field in this landscape. Which point out it's a big steampunk thing on legs. It's not like literally like a Castlevania Dracula mm, castle dramatic it, thing. It's, it's a giant, almost like breathing yeah. moving thing mm. that is like yeah all this like gears and pulleys and stuff all shifting around and it's just an amazing piece of design it's something i would love to have like a really incredibly detailed like model or toy oh, of yeah, you know that yeah. kind of thing and imagine like i don't want to touch this because i'll break it kind <laughs> of toy <laughs> well like oh god this is a this is a you know a masterpiece of of design and craft and stuff I would love that kind of thing, just to have it, just to study like, oh, so now I can see it from this angle and see what the design looks like from this kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it's a fantastic movie about coming to terms with aging, coming to terms with war coming to your country, whether you like it or not. Uh, true love is, of, of course, it's an animated movie. There's going to be some true love in there. It's fantastic. Uh, it does deviate from the book quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, it is mm. based on a book, um, which is uh, from the eighties, I think, if I remember mm. correctly. A British, it's um, uh, I, Diane Wynne Jones, isn't it? Who's a yes, a it is. Yeah, British yeah. Author. Yeah, exactly. And I've not read the book, but from what I understand, it is it is quite a departure from yeah. in certain ways. But but a lot of the themes are still similar and still kind of kind of lying in the same kind of kind of anti-war, anti kind of all the all this kind of stuff. I realise I've been talking That's for fine, like seven pick. minutes. That's, right. That's, That's good. That's what we want. Your, your passion behind it. Yeah, Howl's Moving Castle is is a fantastic movie. And also, let's face it, The Cat Returns aside, it was the big one after Spirited Away. It was bannered with yeah. the, from the director of Spirited Away, a Academy Award winning studio, Academy Award winning movie. This is the next big one. It's a big thing. And I think that's very much in, in, in Miyazaki's mind when he was making this, that like talking about that, that, that anti-war mindset it's like well do you think people don't care about this cartoon yes because i just want a fucking oscar because whatever <laughs> like the same way that i wouldn't like uh, bong joon ho whatever he does next but from the maker of parasite it's going to be that thing it, it has to be there's a lot of pressure on you to do something good and how's moving castle i think for that reason is a lot of people's introduction as well because you might have missed spirited away at the time but if you were of the certain age in the early 2000s you knew this was coming you knew this was a thing and it had big names attached to it um and 
it's also in the early 2000s age of, of anime where, I mean, Jack mentioned about the cast itself, the minutiae, the, the small detail is, is exquisite. And anime has always struck me like that. Like, I grew up on like things like Thundercats and thought, why is the opening title sequence so fucking good and the show looks so cheap? It's like, the opening title sequence is done by Japan. Well, do they do other animation? <laughs> yeah, they do. It's the best fucking thing you've ever seen. Oh my God, everything is breathing with life. Even if it's a TV series or a film, this is amazing. Obviously not always the case. But obviously that's expensive and time consuming. And this is the era where you start to get a bit of CGI coming in. Not a great deal, but a bit of it. And other studios do the same sort of thing. Um, and Hell's Moving Castle is mostly a, a sort of hand animated, classically animated film, but there is elements of CGI. Um, I want to say, I think most of the, uh, some of the castle are CGI in, in a capacity, but yeah. You're correct, yeah. When they do a 3D pan yes. around the top of it, it there are some yeah, CGI elements. It's just elements easier well, to, do, yeah. to sculpt that kind of model and then put it into things. And obviously, as we've gone on, things like your name we mentioned earlier, for example, which is not a Ghibli product, uh, but it, 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 it's. And it's not like we think of now with an animated movie CGI, like something like Frozen, for example, Frozen 2, that kind of Pixar animation. It's like, no, no, no. You want it to look hand animation, but not be and draw on the character models, et cetera, et cetera. So they've merged nicely over the last 20 years. And there are certainly shows where it's easier to stand out. And you say, ah, it's harder to tell where the CGI stuff comes in and out, but mostly it's vehicles because they're a fucker to draw. Any, any animator, I think we talked about this before, like, wasn't it like a, a car chasing a horse behind a grid fence? And you're like, draw that. Yeah. Like, Fuck <laughs> you, you asshole. <laughs> yeah. It was like, what, what six words put fear of God mm. into any artist or animator? And it's like, yeah. Yeah. yeah that. And um, <laughs> so, so, so it is a visual spectacle and it's also high fantasy as well as sort of steampunk stuff. So it's a very, unique look and at the time you have again huge huge impact from pixar but not a lot from disney so you have pixar doing strong cgi animation with like monsters inc and all that sort of stuff coming through and finding nemo etc 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 and we like that rendered look and disney's going oh fuck brother bear isn't doing well oh no we're doing this other movies yeah God, let's bear. try and do bolt that'll be like an animated movie like like basically another pixar one we own the same sort of company and blah blah but this is different. And this offers that kind of that scratches that itch of like, I want to see this kind of beautiful film. Not saying the others aren't, but this is a sense of like, it's a specific um, a delivery method, a medium, shall we say, a, a way of doing things. Um, in the same way, like a black and white movie, for example, you can watch it and go, I really appreciate what they've done with this. It might not benefit in color because of that. But at the same time, um, it had enough of an impact. And it, I think Howl's Moving Castle, I will, I will contradict this later, but in the traditional sense of what people think of when they think of, um, of Studio Ghibli, this might be one of the last big ones. Um, there is another one or two that are like, this is what we think of with a classic Ghibli film, but ultimately it, it might be the last big splash where it makes such a huge impact. Is it's it's one of the biggest of the modern of, of like the twenty first century mm. version of Gibb. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I I very nearly had this as my pick before Jack got in there and and swooped it from under me. I'd actually rewatched it recently before we'd even decided we were talking about Shia Ghibli in the end oh, season. Nice. Um, partially because I I had a D and D character who was going to have like a familiar who was going to be partially based on Calcifer. Um, and I wanted to kind of rewatch that performance, and it's so good. Like like Jack was saying, like that 
that Billy Crystal. I'm not someone who like is madly in love with Billy Crystal, but he's so great in this film. It's such a great character, and just the animation of it is so perfect. This this sort of uh, the 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 protean form of this fire and the way he flares up and dies down over the course of the film and um the 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 real sense of danger uh, when he gets to kind of barely holding on to his form and stuff like that and the the way that the castle changes without spoiling it too bad but uh, too much but the way the castle changes over the course of the film and like the moments of real tension you get when this location that you've grown to love that you know it, it's kind of a cliche to say it's almost a character in and of itself but it is because it's so closely tied to both Howl and Calcifer um, who who are kind of symbiotic with it and when it starts to become damaged and stuff like that it, it, it's really heartbreaking and I think like Jack was saying like as, a, as an anti-war film it's really like fascinating the fact that at the beginning Howl is sort of trying to play the two sides off against each other and is pretending that he's going to work for both of them as a way of kind of avoiding having to work for either and still gets sucked into it and still faces the consequences and, and realises that, like, no, this isn't the kind of thing where I can kind of be like this sort of dilettante about it and, you know, uh, sort of, yeah, play people off against each other and, 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 and trick my way out of it. Like, war is such a brutal force of destruction that, like, it doesn't matter how clever you are, you either have to accept that you're going to be part of it or you have to actively fight against it. You can't just kind of try and sneak your way around it because it, it just is this all-consuming force. Um, such a great film. Yeah, a, a fantastic pick. Speaking of fantastic picks, Tim, how about you? What's your first choice? Well, just like just like you swooped Howl from under me, I am going to take your first uh, Studio Ghibli film uh, and talk about that. You're popping exactly. my cherry, Tim. Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, which is a very simple, straightforward film. Um, much, I won't say it has no grand metaphor because it's it does, uh, and it's it's a really affecting film. But it's not dealing on things of the same scale as a Howl's. It's a very personal story. It's a much earlier film. Uh, it's another uh, Hayao Miyazaki. But this came out in 1989, which is like, obviously, with animation, there's a lot of run up time and incredibly long production because it's such a painstaking thing. But it boggles the mind to think that he did Castle in the Sky in 86, My Neighbor Totoro in 88. And then this was a year later, one year later, Kiki's Delivery Service comes out because it's another gorgeous film. It's very, to me, it's very different to. We've talked about how a lot of Miyazaki's films deal with nature, um, and My Neighbor Totoro is is very over in that. It's out in the countryside. It is about rural life in a lot of ways, and a the relationship with nature. And Kiki's Delivery Service is a lot more urban, but it still has that sense of the beauty of nature in the landscapes, and it, it presents a world where humanity is living a little bit more in unity with nature, I think. For people who haven't seen it, it's a, like I say, it's a very straightforward story. It is about a young witch who is 13 years old called Kiki, who leaves home as part of her, this kind of traditional training for witches, goes to live in this port city, and um, to make money, she basically becomes a, a delivery service 
using her broom to fly around and deliver stuff for people. And while she's there, she becomes friends with this uh, boy called Tombo, who kind of sort of has a crush on her. Um, and they sort of have a, a sort of a relationship that slowly develops. Over the course of the film, she becomes, she sort of works herself harder and harder and eventually discovers that she can't make her broom fly anymore. Uh, we've mentioned it many times on this podcast. Uh, Patrick Willems did a really great video uh, about Kiki's delivery service recently, talking about how it's a metaphor for like burnout, basically, and how it is about you taking a thing that you're passionate about and that you love, which, you know, in, in Kiki's case is, is flying and is magic and turning it into your job and realizing that you are sucking the life out of yourself and out and your passion for it. Christ, Miyazaki, what um, are you trying to say? Just be more direct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we should yeah, stop with these yeah. metaphors. You're not a you know? witch girl. <laughs> Tell us how you, you feel. Know, I, 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 and uh, there's a character called Ursula who is uh, a painter uh, that Kiki encounters, yeah. and she basically says to Kiki at one point, like, "It's oh, you've got you've got artist's block, you've got writer's block." Mm except your writing is is your flying. Um, and, you know, not to spoil, at the end, Kiki manages to kind of regain her her confidence and her powers with her broom at a crucial moment. It's, it's a really, it's shot through with that kind of Studio Ghibli bittersweet melancholy where it is uplifting and sad at the same time it's absolutely gorgeous. This kind of port city that they live in, I forget the name of the, the town that it is, but it's its one of those places where, you know, if if you go like, oh, what movie location would you love to live in? Oh, yeah. It's one of those ones that leaps to mind because it's just such an, an idyllic location. And it's unlike a lot of other Studio Ghibli films, it's not one of these, like... It, it's, it doesn't have that scouring of the Shire moment where it's mm. like, oh, here's this lovely idyllic location. Mm. Now we're going to fuck it up because that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> you must burn in the um, fires of progress. Like now. Yes, exactly. Corico, I think it is. Corico? I, think, I don't know if they renamed it. Because I know the 90, original 90s dub, which mm. they then did a different one for. It's like, ah, oh, we'll, we'll change it. In the classic way, very just to quickly jump in here, um, whenever someone would translate something in the 80s, 90s, and onwards, they would translate it for an American audience. And the classic example is in Pokemon. I love these jelly donuts, as opposed to Ume <laughs> plum rice balls. And it's like, oh, well, that's too confusing. A rice with a plum? In? That's silly. It's a donut. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, and they would rename people's characters' names to Phil, Bob, George, mm. that thing. But now, obviously, we're weeby enough and respectful enough that we want actual translations. So what we end up having is like, oh, I love Yakitori. And it's like, oh, oh, oh okay. So it's Kodoko, I think, but I don't know if they changed it in certain dubs. But anyway. Yes, because there were, there were two separate English dubs of yep. it. There was one which was done in kind of 1990, which was done with a lot of uh, regular voice actors yes. of, who worked a lot in Japan or worked a lot on anime, just kind of, you know, doing English dubs of stuff. And then in 97... Uh, Disney, who at that point, by that point, had got the rights to distribution for for Studio Ghibli stuff, did another dub uh, with a lot more celebrities involved. So you had people like Kirsten Dunst voicing Kiki. Uh, you had Phil Hartman voicing Gigi the cat. If if you don't recognise Phil Hartman as a voice actor, hi, he's Troy McClure. 
He's that guy from The Simpsons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tress McNeil, who's in also in a bunch of Simpsons and Futurama and mm. uh, did Animanians a bunch of like stuff, Animaniacs yeah. and things. Yep. Uh, Janine Garofalo, uh, Brad Garrett. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot more famous people uh, involved yeah. in it rather than people who you just go, who, who the fuck's that? Oh, they did a they uh, they did voices in some of your favorite cartoons, but you've never heard yeah. of them, kind of. Thing. And the thing is that, like, uh, also like Debbie Reynolds, who's Carrie Fisher's mum. So there was like big industry yes. names, but it wasn't at the extent it got later. Where it's like every single character is an A-lister. It's like holy shit. Yes, but that's because it's late nineties. They just acquired this property, so yeah, yeah. Yes, and it was before. It was pre-spirited away, yes. so it was still this slightly niche thing of you know. Well, we think it's worth doing a, a bigger release in America, yeah. and we think it's worth redubbing, but you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna pay to get fucking Batman in it. Uh, <laughs> George Clooney, we'll Jesus Christ! We'll get we'll get Mary Jane. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but I think it's such a it's such a simple film, but it's so heartfelt, um, and. It's just one of those ones, it's very comforting to watch, I think. A bit like Totoro, it's it's got a, a deeper message to it. Like we said, it's you know, it, it's about creative frustration, it's about writer's block, it's it's about burnout. But at the same time, it's it's saying, Don't worry, you'll 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 get through this. You know, you'll you, just give it time and remember why you love the things you love. Uh and try and find that joy again uh yeah. and that's a very reassuring message <laughs> so kiki's is a really interesting one um because again it's one of those other ones because it was 97 when princess mononaki came out and it was starting to get more and more popular with the dvd release etc and this was effectively a re-release it is also another one like like jack but an introductory one for a lot of people um it's also very light it's very easy to watch and the stakes are fairly low but strangely relatable despite being a wizard harry that kind of thing <laughs> it's not the special one who's the chosen one who has to change the world it's like just just try not try not to get too sad just find a place to live get a job and you'll be all right yeah. make, make some friends and the key thing here is and then one of the things that is quintessentially very ghibli there are two sort of standouts that, that, that it's like oh it's like the disney it's like this is why it's better than disney it, to, it sometimes the first one is the fact that the nature of the word nostalgia, and I'm very much experienced this at my age, and, and I assume you guys are as well, and our listeners are like, oh yeah, I have nostalgia when I was a kid. It's like, no, no. Nostalgia is two waves. Nostalgia is a wave where you go, oh, I remember that. That was great. That's one. Wave two is the actual nostalgia. Nostalgia in its actual sort of original Greek, as it were, is related to pain. It's not a fond memory of the past. It is an mm. unexpected ennui that hits you. And you kind of want to cry and you don't know why. And you're like, and the logical part of your brain says, don't be fucking stupid. The 90s were not good. You don't want to go back there. You <laughs> were a child who had no rights and you had no fucking money and no time to yourself and you hated school and bad things were happening. It's like, I know, but I kind of just have a pang and I can't explain it. It's like, yeah, it's called getting old. It's what it is. And this film has a real nostalgic feel to it. Tim's like right about the whole, like, would you like to live in a certain place? It's the idea of going back to a simple time, but not in this sort of negative walk back. You can't have freedoms. You can't have the vote. You can't have integration in society with various ethnicities and genders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just the idea of like, I just want things to be simple again. And Kiki as a character experiences that as she goes through the story. She's like, her trials and tribulations are incredibly simple, but she's like, I kind of want just this all to stop. It's like, why? You're doing great. 
keep going. This is this is life. This is good. You'll look back on this fondly in future. And the cat, effectively Gigi, is telling her this the whole time. It's like, just, you know, relax, ease up, enjoy this. Um, and then obviously she can't focus, she gets too stressed, too bogged down. And it's very, very relatable in that regard. The second thing that is very quintessentially Ghibli, it is a female lead in 1989. And Ghibli did this a We've lot. We've talked about two films, both of which have female leads. Get used to it, because that's going to really, happen again as yeah. well. <laughs> it's a really strong, important thing that if there weren't a female lead, they had a very strong female counterpart. And not like, oh, a strong female role. No, they had an agency. They had um, <laughs> yeah. ability or this agenda. Is, this is not strong, meaning she does kung fu once in the film. <laughs> yeah, wire work. That's what she does. No, it's it, it's genuinely, they have their own agency, their, their own agenda. They want things and they struggle over adversity, et cetera, et cetera. And that makes them stand apart from other studios. Now, to be fair, other studios we mentioned earlier had the exact same thing. And that's not true of all Japanese studios. That's not true of all, not, not true, shall we say, of, of, of American studios. But it's very, very, been very strong from the start with Ghibli. And that's always very interesting. And that's why this one stands out quite a bit because. When you come up against some of the really big, like Howl's Moving Castle, as, as you say, there's so many big themes and so much it's trying to get across. And there's just this really nice sweet town and this nice little story about what's, what's the trepidation? I have to live upstairs and I'm a bit unsure where I'm going to go to bed. Oh, no, I'm really happy. This is my own space now. I'm uh, okay. And then she's like flying on, good morning. And it's just like, oh, wow, I'd fucking love to live there. It seems so peaceful and calm. It's like, no, it's not peaceful and calm. She's, she's stressed because she's got a job. <laughs> It's that it's like the past isn't what you think it is. This simple life you're chasing isn't always a simple life, but sometimes you can make the best of it because of the situation you're in, because of the people you're with. Simple fucking moralistic stuff, but it's presented so beautifully that, as we say, you end up crying and you don't exactly know why. <laughs> Matt, that brings us around to you. What obscure one? I mean, it can't be it can't be too obscure because there's only like twenty six of them. Oh, I don't know. Mm. Unless you're gonna go, it's not technically Ghibli, but <laughs> I was fucking waiting for that, Tim. I'm not gonna. As a lie. parallel I've... studio release, it's actually worth including this movie. I've I've picked this because it was very influential on Ghibli. It's actually a Kurosawa film <laughs> from 1951. 1982's Go the Cellist is actually as deserving as the <laughs> yeah, blah blah blah. No, it's it's pigs in it. Um... <laughs> <laughs> what is it, Matthew? Pigs. Thank you. Um, yes. No. Um... This is a weird one because, just in general, but it's not, it's my favourite Ghibli film and has been wow for a long time. And people, as Jack just said, always go, really? Or, wow, okay. Because <laughs> we, we on the show, we say about, you know, everything we review is like, oh, it's, it's somebody's favourite film. Um, this is my favourite because, well, a lot of reasons. It's not the first one I saw. It's not, it does, I don't, I don't gel with the, everything in it perfectly. I don't have that identification of like, oh, that's me. That sort of, you know, projection. And, and so <laughs> it, it just literally is a case of something almost un, ind, indescribable, undefinable. It's just something that just, it just clicked within me. And that's that, that, that as a critic, you know, you review something, in my case, one to five. I don't do a zero because the film has been completed, but it's a one to five. And then there's other things that transcend that. They still get a five, but then they're like, but this one was special. Or I give it a three <laughs> out of five, but it was special to me. I give it a four out of five, but it's the best thing I've ever fucking seen. I can't <laughs> give it a five, but my God, it's a six in my heart. 
the film I'm talking about is Porco Rosso. Yeah, or, that classic Japanese name. Yep. Porco Rosso. <laughs> the Crimson Pig, <laughs> which what it translates to. So it's a Hayao Miyazaki film, as all of these have been thus far. And it was released in 92. Uh, so effectively the film that Miyazaki did after Kiki's Delivery Service. And Takahata had just done Only Yesterday, and much like Grave of the Fireflies, was not what people were expecting off the back of all these magical, whimsical things. Um, by the way, Only Yesterday is a fucking magnificent thing. It almost made my pick here, kind of. Um, but Porco Rosso is the story of, set in the late 1920s in Italy. And it's not some sort of fancy land. It's Italy. And but... It is, but there's a caveat. <laughs> but... It tra- treads a weird line. It is a swashbuckling film, effectively, much like this sort of old, sort of 30s serial kind of thing. The kind of thing that someone like Spielberg and, and uh, Lucas would have grown up on and gone, God damn, I want to make that kind of thing. I want to make an Indiana Jones or a Star <laughs> Wars. That's my kind of cool character. And the best way I can describe it is Humphrey Bogart is a pig who flies a plane. <laughs> Voiced by Michael Keaton in the dub. <laughs> Yes, voiced by another Batman, Batman. <laughs> Michael Keaton. Yeah, and the the, the original dub, as in the 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 nineties dub, is fine. It's not yeah. very good. You can't really get a hold of it. The Japanese original is also really fucking good. Um, but a lot of people stand out and go because uh, I think this is one of the earlier ones they started doing along with like Kiki's Delivery Service, for example. And yeah, Keaton jumped straight on and said, "This is so cool. This is amazing. I'm, I have to do this." And the idea is there's this old uh, sort of World War One ace fighter pilot, and he's the one who didn't die, basically. He has this survivor's guilt. He has this idea that he was the only one of his Italian comrades who didn't get killed and came back to Earth, as it were. He has this sort of weird dream and crashes into the sea, and he's just so despondent and quite chauvinistic and, and quite literally a pig. And as such, is random, and it's never. It's not like like with Howl's Moving Castle, you have this origin of the curse that changes Sophie into an old woman. Nope, he's just a pig. And then yeah, sometimes they don't, they're, they're not like, oh, by the way, he was cursed to be a pig. Yeah. Or and everyone's <laughs> he was born okay a man or born a pig, nope. and his parents freaked out. Nope, nope. Just he, it's not the penguin, it's Batman as a pig, and and that's the point. It is literally just this. He's aesified, but and he's put in sort of self-imposed exile. He refuses to join the Italian military, um, the Air Force, because, as with actual Italy, it's a fascist government. And his old friend is part of said fascist government. Um, and there's this Texan fighter pilot as well, voiced by Carrie Owens in the, in the dub. Um, and yeah, that, that famous Texan, Texan Carrie Owens. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, early 2000s casting. Didn't make yep. didn't even make sense. And the idea and there's that's, also, that's the lead from Saw, by the way, and the guy from Princess Bride. Yes, by exactly. The way. Yeah. If you don't know who Carrie Elwes is, Robin Hood Men in Tights, yeah. motherfucker. Robin Hood Men yeah. in Tights. Yeah. And it, it it works so stupidly well because on one hand it's about this frustrated, grim guy who's like it kind of plays like like Bogart's character in, in Casablanca. He's kind of just looking out for himself. He's he doesn't care about the war. He doesn't want to get involved. He's just going to stop some pirates every now and again. And, you know, he gets right. The opening mission is like he hears like a, a thing over the radio, someone saying, "Oh, guys, just you know, there's there's some 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 pirates out hijacking a plane, it's like um, or a boat, I think it was at the time." And um, it's like, "Well, uh, I'm not going to be bothered with that." And it's like, "Okay, they're attacking this this ship. You need to to get to it." And it's like, "Right, 
there's a lot of schoolgirls on board and he's like oh fine and he goes out there and does his mace, you know, amazing sort of combat and the girls are saved and he's like oh there's a hassle everything all his kids around he's quite curmudgeoning and then they all they all sort of go back to this sort of safe haven bar run by this girl called Gina and she is kind of on off flame with with Porco and again he's a shitty guy and the government's after and him a pig. and a pig <laughs> and he ends up working with uh, a young girl who is very much, you know, she's exceptionally good engineer. Again, not a female lead, but a fucking great female lead. You've got one who is this sassy sort of criminal enterprise owning, um, uh, sorry, club owning lady who, who just has a safe haven. She has no problem telling criminals, shut the fuck up. I'm singing now. I'm going to sing a song for you. Um, but at the same time, there's also this strong character in, in Fio who is an engineer, wants to be taken seriously. And she's an, a, you know, a great skilled uh, technician, as it were. And they just basically have adventures. And it ends really simplistic. I'm not going to just go too much into it, but he, he talks about his time and how he was, you know, World War I and fighting Austro-Hungarian aircraft over Italy and stuff and how he doesn't want to get involved with the secret police and things like that. And he believes in himself, but also he's got a kind heart. So he actively gets himself involved and then when you know he refuses to turn himself to the italian air force they're like, you should join us and he said nah and that's where the line comes from i'd rather be a pig than a fascist <laughs> and it's interesting because this is again another miyazaki piece where he's talking about contemporary stuff and putting themes in and it's a weird one because this started off as a short film for aviation companies an, an in-flight movie, yes. yeah, like a little Yeah, a little thing, thing yeah, to enjoy. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck? And it, it would have been just a little thing to put on the background and kind of ignore and just like, oh, that's pretty nice. Became a full-fledged film. And it was very much about the, the war in Yugoslavia, as it was called at the time. Very much this idea of like, no, the Adriatic and all of Italy is not this idyllic, beautiful place that the Japanese assume it. It's like they love France and Paris until so they actually go there and get a sense of ennui because it's not what they thought it was because the French are the French. It's like... Oh, they'll all be beautiful and have wonderful Parisian conversations. Like, no, it's Europe. It smells and it's <laughs> dank and it's wet and miserable, but it's also one of the best places in the world. That kind of thing, you know? Um, so someone who's loved Paris. But at the same time, it's like, no, this this dream I had of what Italy is like is gone now. It's been ruined by war again. For fuck's sake. And just it all comes into this idea of not not um glamorizing war or, or even combat but as somebody who grew up as Miyazaki himself with I think his parents or his father was a word, word with um aviation plant uh, I think it was a I can't remember which one it was specifically but the point is that he grew up with planes and an obsession with planes as a kid it's why you know the wind rises is the way that it is and, and planes have been a bit in flight in general has been a big thing for Miyazaki um mm. as much as his anti-war stuff is his obsession with planes and just the idea this flying ace who you know glides with ease in this beautiful plane um and everyone kind of is enamored with him but he's kind of a bit of a badass bit of a dick bit of a loner uh bit of a bit of a snake pliskin sometimes but with more principles and and yeah it's just a really sweet movie and he gets turned he's you know he's, he's got a heart of gold kind of thing he's like no i don't want to get involved i don't want to be i'm just a pig you know what humanity's not worth saving and then he hears a story about theo and he you know how her, her emotion says you know what I'd be okay being a human again just because of people like you. But I'm a pig. <laughs> and he's like, then he lives in this cove by himself and it's, it's the isolationist mindset, but not really. And he wants to come back, but not. And 
it's 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 really nice and the thing is it's a fun film with a sweet message that's sort of saying something but isn't and it's very much pitched to kids and adults at the same time because you have the whole like you know hey kids get off my plane i gotta try and shoot this no don't try and shoot him he's great oh no, no, no. <laughs> that 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 sort of slapstick cartoon comedy as well as having a conversation in a cinema with this big trench coat and a hat saying no, you can stick a government up your ass. I'm not paying for the fucking fascists. <laughs> what you what you want and what you're trying to get out of this thing, it's it's control and it's wrong. And where this country is heading is 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 not something I want to be part of. I will never join that. It's like, wow, you have a fucking tonal whiplash. And again, that shouldn't work. That shouldn't work. But it is a magnificent movie, and I love it. And and it's one of those ones people say, oh, I haven't seen it. It's like, why? I don't know. There's no magic stuff. There's a pig flying up. It's a flying pig. It's a thing you don't see. Do you not understand? But also, the reason he's called, I mean, it's like, you know, to be called a red pig or fat pig was apparently, and again, like everything with, with when you're trying to translate something from a different country, much like Sergio Leone. Oh, yeah, all Americans say duck, you sucker, all the time. So I'll call my film Duck, you sucker. Nobody says duck, you What the fuck are you <laughs> call it? A fistful of dynamite like we want you to, you idiot. Fine, you can release that internationally, but it's called Ducky Sucker. There's this idea that fascists would call socialists pigs. Red pigs, specifically. So the idea is that this is a sort of the last hurrah of a socialist mindsetted individual. And again, someone like Hayao Miyazaki, who has grown up in the shadow of war and an atomic war, effectively, um, at least at the end part. And all various crimes of what his country's done and blah, 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 and the conflict and the, and the controversy. But also, he, for, I think for university or college at least, was a politics major. He, he was, he's, that's why it's so heavy in his stuff. And this is where it comes across in its most subtle. And so you can just watch it as a cool, fun, silly film about a pig who flies around and a girl who likes him and she's really good at fixing the plane and, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's got, he gets contracts every now and again and, uh, you know, this, this one guy's Italian family, they're all women, they all fix the planes, like, hey, you got any male cousins and things? God damn, that kind of thing. And it's like, don't be an arsehole, don't be a pig, you, are, you really are a pig, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and he gets in a big boxing match with this other pilot because reasons and that's how men solve their problems. And they're like, just that's an, and it's, it's resolved with a woman arriving in a plane saying, get up now, stop breaking hearts. And he's like, fine. And that's, that's, it's so simplistic. And yet it's saying so much. And the fact it's got air pirates and it's steampunky and it's just, it's just so much fucking fun. It's really good. And the thing is, this movie was a huge fucking success. It was enormous. Miyazaki wasn't really expecting it. Uh, this one ended up being a really big commercial and critical success. It's like, ah, we'll see. I want to develop this idea more. And it became this big thing. So yeah, it's it's fantastic. But I don't know if you guys have necessarily seen it. I have not. It's it's one of those ones that I've been meaning to watch for a long, long while. It's high on my list of uh, when I get round to tackling all of the all of the Studio Ghibli films. It's it's high up my list of ones to watch nice. first. I have seen Borgo Rosso. I really, really like it. Like I said, I think it is. Uh, again, there is a seriousness to it. There is a tone that again touches on war and stuff like that it's a, it's a theme we're going to keep coming back mm-hmm. to folks but it is one of the funnier ones as well oh, i yeah. think i think it has a real sense of levity that you don't get in a lot of the other ones even with stuff that is more kind of like wistful and childlike take spirited away for example mm-hmm. i would not describe that as a funny film no 
it has moments of brevity. It has moments of nice little like cute moments and all that kind of stuff. But Porco Rosso is hilarious and ridiculous. And I I do really kind of love the fact that they're he's just a pig man. <laughs> we're, we're not every now and again it. there'll be like a moment where someone says, "Hey, hey, your face," and you get like a glimpse of him as a person. Obviously, you see in the flashback as a person, so it's not like it's like you know a huge spot of what does he look like? He looks like a dude with a moustache. But the fact that yeah. sometimes he turns back into a person is like, well, I just, and it's a glimpse of humanity. It's, yeah, it's great. It was great. I agree. Yeah. Excellent choice. Matthew. Thank you. Jack, what's your second pick, please? I'm going to get weird <laughs> with perhaps the, the weirdest of, of like the ones that are fairly sort of big and, and, and well-known. I think this is one of the weirder ones. and Mainstream weird. Mainstream weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna talk about and I'm gonna go a little bit a little bit further on from my uh, 2004 I'm going to go to 2008 and we'll talk about Ponyo which is kind of the little mermaid <laughs> it's kind of a lot of things <laughs> but not it's kind of taken it is also kind of taken <laughs> yeah um, again with a really weird and I know I touch on the voice cast every time but there was that moment where I was watching it and I was like, is that, is that Liam Neeson? <laughs> is that Matt Damon? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Why are they, why are these really famous actors in this, in this Japanese animation? This is so weird. About a fish girl. <laughs> About a weird little fish girl that loves ham and transforms into weird little fishy monsters and then back to her girl form and then learns how to run with her weird little <laughs> legs and oh yeah so yeah it's kind of how do i describe this kind of like the little mermaid if she escaped onto land and essentially like king triton equivalent fujimoto her dad is off looking for her um and she kind of gets swept up and floats away and all this kind of stuff i don't know it, for, for me like i said it's the one i've seen the most and mm. it's still one i don't fully i don't feel like i fully get if that makes sense i, I would because it is so weird at times it is yeah. so like like it is it is very clearly the little mermaid and some and i don't mean disney's the little mermaid just to clarify i mean Anderson. based on the hans christian anderson shit because that shit is mm -hmm. weird too ponyo the weird little fish girl like I said, <laughs> seemingly just morphs into different shapes for no reason, which is a very anime thing to do. You often get those like big reaction shots where somebody their head is bigger or they're like, and they overreact and oh my God, and their eyes go huge or they're crying and the tears are like the size of, you know, their head and all this kind of stuff. That's kind of typical over the top anime animation type stuff. They're not doing that. They're doing it to be weird. <laughs> And she just starts shifting shapes and like her mouth becomes huge so she can just eat ham and she basically just goes ham <laughs> and loves eating ham. It just remi reminds me of the 30 Rock bit where um, Tracy Morgan's wife becomes the spokesman for ham because people like the way she says it. <laughs> ham. I think it's weird because when we think about stories from a sort of very Grimm's fairy tale, fairy tale European sense and what Disney ended up hoovering up, it tends to be teenagers quite often because it's the formative time where you're going out and being a different person. You're now a sort of adult, proto-adult as it were. This isn't like that. This isn't like a sexual awakening of a, of a teenager. 
this is a toddler meeting another toddler and not being a big old racist, essentially. <laughs> it's like, you're different, but I don't give a fuck because we're friends. Whereas the adults are like, you can't mess with them. No, you stay here. We don't go there. You don't go there. And you're not there. And you're all different. It's like, I don't care if we're different. We're friends. We like ham. Um, and <laughs> it, it's that kind of energy, I think. That, that, but but it's, it's, it's laced in so much. And the thing is, we, we, we being British, we're island people. Um, yeah. And Britain forgets that a lot because we get very arrogant about it. Like, no, 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 no. We're a, you know, the, the mainland's cut off from Britain. No, we're an island. That's not how that shit works. Um, we should be, you know, fish and chips is the national dish. It's actually, it's curry, but that's not the point. Um, we should be eating more of a fish diet. Like Japan has like a huge fish diet because it's on a fucking island. Life comes from the fucking sea when you're on an island. We eat a lot of beef and lamb. And it's like, wait, wait, what? Um, but, and chicken. But the point is that fish should be the main diet of this country because we're an island. And there are so many things in our folklore and our legends about shit coming out of the sea like selkies and things like that, you know, things coming on land and, and mermaids and things, but you're like with Denmark, the same sort of thing, because we have this weird relationship with the sea. And as such, it is that kind of energy, that kind of, as you say, Jack, that, that, that weird, hard to describe sort of fisherman's tale, half real, yeah, half not. Yeah. What is this dreamlike madness of, oh, we live in a lighthouse kind of stuff. And once I saw this weird thing out in the sea, that kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, you can't have, you know, formed a friendship with the person because nothing lives in the sea other than fish. It's like, well, and this girl, she was running alongside me when we were having, like, a, you know, the tide was going. Aquaman shit. It's Aquaman, but good, basically. <laughs> it's what we're learning here. <laughs> it's, it's the weird, like, magicalness of Ponyo. Like, when she's swept away from her father and she then decides to be, like, oh, no, the boy who found me, like you mentioned, Matt, and the boy who mm. finds this other, like, four-year-old, five-year-old, whatever he's supposed to be. Sosuke is like, oh, I'm going to call you Ponyo. And you're like, okay, that's a, a sure. That's that's weird, but okay. And then she's like, yeah, I'm called Ponyo from now on, Dad. Don't call me my birth name. Also, I can grow legs because I drank his blood. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, because she licks a wound of his and it like heals really quickly. And for some reason, that gives her the power. She's like, now I have weird little chicken legs. You're like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? No, literal chicken legs. It's very strange. <laughs> literal chicken legs. Yeah. Yeah. We talked, uh, I think it was in the previous uh, interseason, about magic in film mm. and how you can have hard magic systems and soft magic systems. Studio Ghibli does not give a fuck about hard magic. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. It, it is all they just give like. No fuck oh, whatsoever. I I did a thing and now a thing. It's like what? Hang on, what? <laughs> you know, like oh, you know, I thought about I thought about uh, the stars real hard, and so now I can turn into this uh, cat. Yeah, it's like what what? Uh, but I can only do it at the night time because that's when the stars are thinking about me too. Wait, <laughs> what? So the stars are alive? Don't worry about it. it it's, I'm a cat now. It's Disney magic. It's it's whimsical like for kid do, magic. Yeah. We're like. Kids don't care. You don't need to explain how magic works to them. Yeah. Like, mm. Ponyo grows legs because she grows legs. Fuck it. Like, mm. But me, as like a 20-year-old, being like, what the fuck is this? Oh my <laughs> god. This is the weirdest shit I've ever seen. And like you said, Matt, it's not like haunting. It's not like what you're describing is more... a horror film. I'm a bit terrified of it right now. So Yeah, yeah. Going, into more, going into more Japanese horror stuff, like, um, like take Junji Ito type stuff, yeah. That is haunting, terrifying stuff I'll never get out of my brain. Ponyo is not that. 
Ponyo is quirky and weird and charming and adorable and all these weird little things like mushed together and just like the wholesome relationship between Sosuke and Ponyo because they're so young it's just like this oh they're so sweet and like like there's no badness to them if that makes sense there's no mm. like teenage angstiness there's no yeah. kind of like bitterness of the two of them it's like this really sweet little relationship between these two characters that just want to hang out and eat ham together that the innocence of childhood is like i just like your yes. company i kind of want your company more it's like me too great we're now best friends forever that's how the innocence of childhood. are we gonna be best friends we're best friends yeah Yay! exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's usually the problem is like well you know there's magic stipulation that says this cannot can't happen and also adults interfering there's going to be an adult somewhere yeah. that interferes, which is often, as we learn, her dad, voiced by <laughs> Liam Bloody Neeson. <laughs> and yeah, they... Liam Neeson trying to be lighthearted sounding and sounding terrifying at the same time. Oh, you must go on land. <laughs> no, no, don't go over there. It's like, Jesus Christ, yeah, calm he's down, f- he's full on. He's full on Northern Irish, proper Liam Neeson. He's <laughs> not putting on an American accent or anything like that. He's full on Liam Neeson. Oh, with the for- for some reason i guess so <laughs> sure but yeah it is this sweet weird little film that i just find myself thinking about every now and then yeah and just thinking like god the fact that ponyo exists just <laughs> melts my brain like of, of all the weird shit that uh, Jap- japan has created in anime ponyo oyster i don't know maybe it's because i saw it and it was probably the second or third ghibli film i saw and again coming into terms of like oh this is what anime is this is this is there are other options apart from dragon ball z and that kind of thing and understanding where it's all coming from this was me coming to terms of like oh so they do the fa- they kind of doing the disney fairy tale thing like as well like you said the the grimm's fairy tale the hans christian Andersen origins thing this is kind of little mermaid this is interesting and I hadn't really thought about there are other people that do different adaptations of a, of an original book, or original story, and all that kind of stuff, and understand when where that's all coming from, and doing it in a weird and quirky way that is so different to the Disney approach. I can't imagine like watching this and The Little Mermaid and thinking like, well, yeah, they're based on the same book, apart <laughs> from a couple of like, her dad wants to get her back and she's lost from the kingdom of the sea thing. The rest of it is so different. There's no. Yeah, you know, there's no Ursula, there's no like big song musical moments, there's no Eric, there's no like all this other stuff that is key to the Little Mermaid side of things as we know it from Disney. Ponyo just kind of distills it all into this nice little sweet kid friendship essentially. And uh yeah, it's really adorable and weird and quirky and you should go and watch it. Yeah, it's it. one of the things that you think it's gonna be like, oh, it's based on this old Japanese story, right? It's like not really as you say that nope. he kind of just read the little mermaid and it's like and the mermaid book ends with the fact she doesn't have a soul and he's like i don't like that not having that shit no i'm gonna make a sweet version where she does have a soul she's the nicest thing and you want to protect her and then also apparently she's a weird little fish person. he was in like yep, britain with another creative block because you know miyazaki's just getting very like oh everything i do is shit and i think he saw like uh the ophelia painting which is you know in, in hamlet ophelia drowns herself and she's like lying in the wood and there's, there's a, there's mm. a famous painting of it from the 1800s which is also uh, there's a film about it which is fine um about the the artist in question but more importantly he said i, I looked at all these paintings and i thought to myself my work is shit everything i do is crap what's the <laughs> point we need to change what we do and he made ponyo 
It's like, obviously, they're not alike at all in terms of animation style or how they look or visuals or this, you know, <laughs> drowning dead woman slash this cute little fish girl with chicken legs eating ham. Um, but it is just a sense of like, sometimes from an artist's perspective, you don't need to just replicate the thing you saw. It's like, oh, I went, I was, I hit a block. I couldn't write a song, went to a concert, thought that's the best song I've ever heard and then wrote the same fucking thing. It's like, no, you write something that speaks to you based on the emotions and feelings you got from that experience. Um, and that's what art effectively is. Uh, and Ponyo's a weird thing to come out of that because it is very largely from his head. And I love that because we, we mentioned before <laughs> about how um, I think uh, the film Throne of Blood, the Akira Kurosawa movie, which is basically just oh, yeah. Macbeth, except in Japan they didn't really perform Macbeth. You just had the written text. So seeing this stuff interpreted through the lens of a different uh, the visual, shall we say, is fascinating because some of the stuff that we just used to a certain way is how we've seen it performed as opposed to how it reads off the page. So this is the example of like what happens when you uh, Google translate the Little Mermaid and this comes out. You're like, oh, okay. That <laughs> kind of makes sense. Yeah. And to, to quickly touch on before we move on to the next pick, how gorgeous looking this film That's is. Crazy. Like it, it really makes me think of like watching Moana and seeing how amazing all the underwater stuff and all the different uh, versions of like the like you said island life essentially, and seeing where the sea meets the sand and all that kind of stuff that that barrier between those two worlds. I think Ponyo explores that perfectly and does this brilliant, like really gets you in the in the mood of understanding. The underwater world mm. and the the world on land and the transitions between the two, just like the famous poster of her emerging under the little jellyfish yeah. and just like popping <laughs> up and being this weird little like creature, little blob. Yeah, this weird little jellyfish blob is so like visually interesting and striking and just this kind of thing. Again, another thing that's always kind of stuck in my brain is that little poster shot, the front of the DVD yeah. cover, that kind of. Oh, a, a creature of two different worlds and them being able to visually distinguish those two worlds has always just been fascinating to me. It's a beautiful looking film as well as having a really sweet kind of poetic story to it as well. Tim, how about you? What's your next pick for Ghibli? So my first pick, Kiki, I said, you know, oh, it, it, there's, there's elements of Hayao Miyazaki's kind of interest in uh, nature versus industrialization in it, but it, it, they're not really up up front. This film, very much up front. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I've gone for one which probably people who are listening are kind of, sort of almost like screaming at the 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 podcast, going, "Why one haven't you talked about this for. one?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is Princess Mononoke. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is a fantastic film. It came uh, almost sort of peak Studio Ghibli. It's just before Spirited Away. It's it's um, Miyazaki's film before that. And it, it wasn't quite when the studio broke the West, but it very much softened up the ground for Spirited mm. Away to then do that. Um, it had a uh, an American release that was done by Miramax as part of their being owned by Disney because it was seen as this like, oh, we've done we've Disney has kind of done the other ones, but this is a slightly more grown up fair, you know. And if we stick the Disney name on it, then maybe kids will go and see it, and we're not sure we we're want crying them to children. See, like, yes, we don't, we don't. We're not sure about this 
princess who's covered in blood. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it, it was the English script was rewritten by Neil Gaiman. Um, and again, it's, it's in this kind of transition period where that doesn't set the tone. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, uh, where it's got some relatively famous people in it. Um, actually, pretty pretty famous yeah. in 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 the uh, in the US uh, English dub. Um, so you have Claire Danes playing San, a guy who wasn't Batman but could have been around this point. Billy Crudup <laughs> uh, as Ashitaka. Um, and you have who else? Uh, Mini Driver, Mini Driver, Billy Bob, Billy Bob yeah. Thornton, yeah, Gillian uh, Anderson, Gillian Anderson, yeah, uh, John DiMaggio, of course, voice of Bender, yes, legendary voice mm-hmm. actor, yeah. And and for people who who haven't seen it, um, it is essentially the story of, as with so many of the others, it's kind of focuses on a male hero, but there's a female character who's basically kind of the deuteragonist. It's sort of about their relationship together uh, and their conflict. Uh, it's about a, a prince called Ashitaka who is cursed. Um, this is set in the sort of medieval Japan, kind of about the 1400s-ish. He is travelling, trying to find a way to kind of rid himself of this curse, and he becomes involved in this struggle between a uh, a, a town which has been established by this uh, woman called Lady Eboshi that is producing firearms and kind of represents this sort of industrialization. It's cutting down a load of the forest. And then the forest is represented by San, who is this human girl who has been raised by wolves and has a connection to these various forest gods and spirits and and sort of yokai uh, and things like that from, from Japanese folklore. And it is, it's very much about industrialization and the compromises. It, it, it's that, hard to mix the message on this one. Yes, think, isn't it? yeah. yeah. Uh, the compromises that humans will make and the corruption that they bring with them by, by, by attempting to take natural resources and turn them into weapons often, uh, if, if not, you know, sort of just progress, quote unquote. It's an absolutely gorgeous film. It's sort of visually, it's inspired a lot of other stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we talked about how much we like Hellboy the Golden Army. And Mm, there is the nature spirit in that. There's basically just the nature spirit from Princess (laughs) Mononoke when you get down to brass tacks. Um, and, And has a very similar sense of melancholy about it where... It is this thing that is both intimidating and beautiful, and the there is just a sense around it of, oh, this this thing is is kind of alien to humans because it's it's so of nature. It doesn't care about human concerns. It cares about the cycles of life and death that are that are beyond human because because we have deliberately separated ourselves from that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so there is a there's a sort of a morality to the forest spirits and the gods there that doesn't match up with how humans approach things. The relationship between uh, Ashitaka and San is so facet. The, the quote that I had at the beginning is from I think a letterboxed review of the film, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is uh, talking about her and the fact that yeah, Ashitaka who kind of comes into it as this guy who is 
sort of feels a lot of responsibility for his people and is aware of some of the corruption that is happening, but kind of doesn't really, he's kind of coming to it from selfish point of view and is aware that it's bad and that it's causing, he's coming to it very much from the point of view of, hey, this corruption that we're putting onto all of these these nature gods is coming back and causing problems for us and that's why I care about it rather than it being bad in and of itself. Um, and it's about him learning to like, no, it's not bad because it's it's disrupting human lives. It's bad because it's disrupting the natural world fundamentally. Yeah, and it's just it's it's just a incredibly kind of complex story about. There's a lot of kind of moral gray areas, which which sounds weird because it's such a simple story of of just hey. Don't fuck up nature, you idiots. <laughs> um, but there's a there's a lot of people in it who are who think they're doing things for the right reasons and come to realise that they aren't or don't come to realise that and end up dead or have their arms bitten off by wolves and stuff like that. Um as, as you, you do. do. Um but yeah, I think it's it, in a lot of ways it's the easiest sell of kind of peak Ghibli because it's especially for for dudes uh it doesn't it's it's got the most action it's the closest to something i think you could go from akira to this very easily yeah feasibly they both <laughs> yeah, yeah they both have dudes where their arm is going weird uh <laughs> sprawling <laughs> rippling shit uh and and you could if someone really liked akira you know you i don't know speaking Taking from my own memories, a 16-year-old kid who watches Akira and goes, that's fucking great. You could hand them this and go like, hey, this is almost like a fantasy version yeah. of that. And they'd go, oh, brilliant. And they'd watch it and go like, oh, yeah, I can kind of see what you were talking you about. Like interesting stuff. stuff well, here's some fantasy wood stuff. It's like, oh, same shit. I like it. Rebellious teenagers yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Rather big laser. It's a bow and arrow. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and then and then you start handing them, you know, stuff like Hentai. Spirited Away. And it's like, less action in this one, but still... You know, yes, there are themes. <laughs> uh, you'll, be, you'll see a running thing, and you appreciate that, right? Yeah. Yeah, anyway. yeah, and then by the end of it, you've got them watching, you know, Pompoko, and they're crazy for raccoon testicles. <laughs> um, but yeah, I th I think it's I can understand why this one hit it so big because in a lot of ways, it's it's very uh, it's it's that four quadrant success yeah. kind of thing where it's like, oh, there's action going on, and there's a love story. And there's a really deep metaphor at the end of it, and it's gorgeous, and it's really well acted. Um, right film at the like, right why time. Why wouldn't it? And it came at exactly the right time, like you said. Um, yeah, so it's it's one of the best, I would it, say. It is, and it's also one that stands up for a lot of people and very much their Agreed, introduction. Yeah. I also would like to add a load of bullshit that is completely unnecessary but worth pointing out because this did very much rocket and propel Ghibli to the forefront for a lot of people in, in um, Europe and America, in spite of everything working against it. So this was a big <laughs> film in Japan, was doing well because it's a Ghibli thing. Ghibli's already an established name. And as, uh, as you mentioned, it was already handed over to Miramax to do it. Now we have to talk about some shit. Miramax uh -oh. obviously was run by Harvey motherfucking Weinstein, that fucking boil on the ass of the world. He brought on gaming, as you say. Uh, Gaiman who reworked it and was known for being an author but not a screenwriter so he was actually 
I think in the original promotional stuff, his name was taken off the film because they were like, eh, we're making a deviation. <laughs> Fuck Correct. you. Yep. The very famous analogy is that the film is like two hours and 15 minutes long. It's, quite, it's, it's, a, it's a lengthy animated movie. And Weinstein, being a piece of yep. shit, just said, no, hour and a half, 93 minutes, 90 minutes long. No, cut it. Cut it down. It's only a fucking kids film. Because he's a, he's a wanker. And uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, Simon. Steve, Steve Alpert, I think it was. He was the promotion manager at the time. And he said, okay, well, I'll, 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 I'll liaise with Japan. And the producers, I don't think it was Miyazaki specifically, but the producers very famously sent a katana, an actual fucking sword, to Harvey Weinstein's office with a piece of paper that said, no cuts. No and like, cuts. <laughs> and he was firing off the fucking handle in, like, God, goddamn, goddamn Japanese, blah, blah, blah. And then he said to Albert, you make yep. them do this. And he said, Miyazaki just won't release the film then. They don't care. They don't want you to change it. Oh, you fucking whatever. Anyway, you'll never work in this industry again, kind of shit. And eventually they did get it out. And it's a fucking miracle it got released. And even then, it's still bombed at the cinema over in, in, in America and stuff because they marketed it badly because... Weinstein hated the fucking thing. So it became a sort of bitter thing. And only when it came out on DVD and video that it started to gain a lot of life and suddenly so became a big thing. And it's like, hang on, this is huge for the people. It's like, it's like when, um, it's like Clerks, for example, so you know, another Miramax film, like what, like seven people in the original screening, but one of the people who were in the screen was a critic who gave them a great fucking review, which snowballed their success. And sometimes that word of mouth is much more important. And, and obviously from there, even mm. again, the old 90s anime community was, if it was a TV series or a film, it's like, I have a video or a copy of a video. I will pass it around. Everyone can watch it kind of thing. Uh, and then you go, cool, is there any more of this? It's like, yeah, kind of. Here's episodes three and four of a show. Oh, do you have one or two? No. Do you have anything that comes afterwards? No, but you'll love it. And Princess Mononoke is the same sort of thing. It would just be passed around. Like, it's like this is fucking crazy. And as Tim said, you know Akira? Yeah, N not that, but kind of, you know, so it's, just, it's in cartoon, but it's intense. Oh, wow. That kind of thing. But again, as I say, it, it's the, the, the sheer, talking about, you know, Miyazaki's overbearing artist, protective of his work. Good. And that's the power you have when you're of your own company. It's what <laughs> Spielberg and Lucas, that's why Lucas made fucking Lucasfilm and didn't want to work for the studios because he didn't want to be told he couldn't do what he wanted to do. And sometimes that, you know, kills the art sometimes it elevates it so yeah but 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 politics aside and, and and the background machinations aside princess mononoke remains one of the most important releases for me for, for ghibli and for a lot of people and some people go back and watch it now and say oh I mean, there are better ones it's like yeah but there was nothing like this at the time matt we're around to you for our final choice are we going to make it uh Six for six for Hayao Miyazaki. Fuck no. So, you know, every fan is sitting there cuddling their giant Totoro saying, oh, I can't wait for my neighbor Totoro to get disgusted. It ain't. Okay, Matt's going to do Grave of the Fireflies. We're going to talk about the sad Grave of the Fireflies film. That's pretty <laughs> fucking Matt. Nope. I'm going to talk. I'm, okay, I'm going to put some hyperbole on this, all right? But it's true. I'm going to talk about one of the greatest animated films of all time. That almost no one has fucking seen. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, this is one of the ones I haven't seen. There's a little... Tim, have you seen this film? I have not. No. That's not, again, that's not a bad thing. <clears throat> because it means you have this to look forward to. This is Isao Takahata's final film. 
there is a lot to say about this, and I will condense a lot of I it. I don't believe you. Uh, well, I'll try. Shout out for that way. Takahata made Grave of the Fireflies, which is beautiful and grim and depressing. He made a film called Only Yesterday. And Only Yesterday is about a, a woman living in Tokyo who goes back to her whole, uh, uh, her own childhood town, has memories of herself as a kid, lots of flashback. He does a lot of sort of white edges on things and sort of almost stripped down art to make it more like a sort of a hazy memory. Does it really fucking well. And I know Ocean Waves isn't by him, but Ocean Waves came out at the same sort of time, which is a shorter film about, you know, memories of the past. And My Neighbor, the Yamadas, is a very stripped down way in how it's shot. And it's one of the least successful performing films because it's vignettes of a family based on an old sort of newspaper serial sort of cartoon kind of thing um, about this family just in everyday life in 90s Tokyo and just going around to the shop and then losing their kid. And it's like, oh, she's still there. It's fine. That kind of, it's like, wh- what is this? It's so weird. It's so, you know, we got Princess fucking Mononoke, the biggest thing we got out in 1997. It's, it's powerful and there's this strange, sprawling, you know, gelatinous, snake-like demon possessing my arm and I've got to do this thing. Everything's like, those, the spirits of the forest are coming after me and there's wolves protecting me and there's, oh, it's so fucking beautiful. What are you going to follow up with? Um, some people go shopping and they watch TV and they talk about how they're going to try pineapple. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> this is insane um so the film i'm picking is called the tale of the princess kaguya um i'm again it is a movie that breaks everyone who watches it i know i'm hyping this shit up here but rightfully so so i remember listening to the mark commode review to this and listening to him talk about this, you can see he's almost like searching in his, his eyes, are darting around. He's looking for words that aren't beautiful, stunning, heartbreaking, and basically all the obvious stuff. And yeah, all the obvious stuff. He's like, I got, I got, I'm a fucking film critic. I've got to do that. I'm, you know, for those who don't know, Mark Commode is a, the British film critic at the minute. Once Barry Norman died, the Tell the Princess Kaguya is essentially the bamboo cutter story. And this is uh, an ancient, and I do mean like a thousand-year-old ancient Japanese story. It's one of the oldest stories Japan has, the tale of the bamboo cutter. And it is a simple anecdotal story. And I'm going to run you through this, and it may seem like I'm spoiling the film, but it's not. It's like saying about some sort of Arthurian legend sort of thing. It's like, yeah, I kind of know about salt and stone. There's a woodcutter, and he goes to the wood, he cuts down some bamboo, which is glowing. And inside it is a little girl. He's like, what the fuck? It's like a little tiny little doll almost. Then he brings it home to his wife. The doll grows into a woman, basically. Or a woman, sorry. A baby. They look after her. But by the rest of the... But like, by the end of the day, she's like nine. She keeps just growing really quickly. And then the woodcutter thinks, oh, she's a beautiful shining princess. He calls her Hime, which means princess. And then he goes back to the woods, cuts down some things, and gold falls out, and silk, and amazing robes, and pure, you know... Uh, the things uh, befitting royalty, shall we say. And he's like, this is a sign. She has descended from heaven, my little princess. We've got to get her to the city. And she's has friends in the countryside, the simple life, where she's literally just, you know, jumping around with her, mostly, let's face it, quite vibrant boys. So boys being, I don't mean boys being boys and how it's been recently, you know, accepting awful behavior, but boys being very, um, uh, I can't think of the word, but, um, Boyish? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
but yeah, effectively just being rambunctious and 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 a bit bit too rough, basically. But she plays with them without any issue at all, and she enjoys her life. She doesn't understand the nature of being a commoner or being someone who is going to possibly starve. She goes, "Oh, great, we're in the woods and we found some mushrooms. It's gonna be delicious. I have a great life. I love my mum and dad." It's like, no, you're a princess. You're a beautiful princess and you deserve the best. And I'm going to give you the best because I've got these things. We're going to the capital, which is Kyoto, although it was kind of called something different at the time. They go there and she's basically trapped in his mansion because she can't go outside because they're famous now. They're rich now. And because of this and the fact that no one comes out, it's like, oh, well, she must be beautiful. And she attracts the attention of his suitors and she turns them all down, which attracts the attention of these very specific court lords. And they're like, all of them race to get to her. And like, oh, I would, I would give you this. I would give you that. So I would, I would do anything for you. And she's like, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't want to be married. I want to stay here. Um, prove it. Oh, what? You say you would do this. You say you'd get me the, the, the shell from a, from a special bird's egg. You said you'd get me this, this fireproof uh, silken garment. You told me you'd get this silver branch with jewels. If if you if you genuinely treasure me, get me these treasures. Like, well, they might not exist. And they all go out and they make fake versions. Come back and she's like, bullshit. Fuck you. Get out of here. And they all they get scuppered away, as it were. Um, and then her memory comes back, and her father keeps forcing her to be a lady of court. You know, she said, I don't want this. I just want to go back home to my friends. And she remembers, and this is where it gets. Japan, this old 1,000-year-old story is also proto-science fiction, because she's from the fucking moon. <laughs> and she basically has come down to Earth because she heard a song about the Earth and thought, oh, this must be a really cool place. But there's a blanket that Buddha puts on you on the moon, and you forget everything about the Earth. And she goes down to see what it's like, becomes this girl, grows up with them. And the moon, once she's at one point, she wishes, like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go home because she's in this, you know, awful state with these suitors. The moon finds her or the moon people, should we say. And she's like, oh, fuck, they're coming. I don't want this. And it's like, oh, well, I'll protect you. My, no one take my daughter away. No one's like, and even the emperor is like, well, you can be mine. It's like, no, you can fuck off as well. The emperor is voiced by Dean Kane, And he gives a good performance because Ghibli films can get a good performance out of anybody. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so basically, he, he's this, like, oh, I'm the emperor, I, I, I deserve you. And he's like, no, no, you made me a promise that you would never touch me. Yes, but I'm so close now. Like, get the fuck away from me. Anyway, and she knows what's coming, and she knows it can't be stopped because they're just humans. And they literally come down on this sort of, this parade, as it were. And Buddha's like, all right, and everyone goes to fucking sleep. They're all armed in swords and, and armor. Nope, sleep. And she goes back to the moon and forgets everything. And it's fucking terrifyingly sad. Because she just loses all her memories. But she's like, I had a good time. And she sort of looks back at the earth as she goes back to the moon. And this, by the way, this is the original story. But it's also translated in the film. Anyway, that's the story. Very sad, but very sweet. The film is much more important than that. So it's a thousand-year-old story that about, you know, again, it's the classic, oh, this is Japanese culture. This is a thing you understand. But it's not that. It's the class divide again. It's the rich and poor thing again. It's the whole, yes, okay, it's moon people and Buddha. It's going to be a fucking Japanese thing. It's like, it's, it kind of isn't. It's just about the idea that a parent who's grown up poor wants the best for their kid. But the kid's like, I was just happy with you. I didn't need all this. And it's like, well, you can marry this person. You, you, be, you get happy by marrying this person. I had a boy I liked and you took me away from him. Why? I, I don't need this. And the simple things I like are just running around and just enjoying nature. And the, the, the garden that you have in this mansion is a fake. It's not real. I'm a fake. I'm not a person. I'm not your daughter. 
It's also adoptee story. It's fucking crazy how much is put into this thing. And that's one thing. Thing number two. Isao Takata might have somehow knew this would be his final film. His proper final swan song. This movie is the most expensive Japanese movie ever made. <laughs> and it's like, that way, what? No, what? It's like, yeah, seriously. It's um, similar to, to, to almost the exact same runtime actually as um, Princess Mononoke, about two, over two hours, two hours, 20 minutes, whatever it is. <clears throat> and it cost a small fortune for them to make it, uh, basically $50 million. And you think, so $50 million isn't that a lot of much money. It's like, Shin Godzilla costs $15 million. This is crazy. This is an animated movie. And the reason it costs so much is it was in five years of development because Takahata said, I will not make a single mistake with this movie. <laughs> Everything has to be researched. And because it's set in the past, how do they make these things? How did they draw lacquer from the tree? I want to know exactly. I want to see the visuals of it. I want to be drawn down. He said, I've never forgiven myself for not getting the melon cutting in Grave of the Fireflies correct. If you watch it and think, they cut into the melon and he pulls out a slice of melon. What the fuck's the problem? <laughs> no, it doesn't look real. So he had research where you'd have people cutting melon for like, you know, and they'd film it and say, ah, oh, the hand moves there. Okay, okay. And you would have that all this minutiae had to be analyzed. Filming cats, filming babies, filming people. And the film itself is genuinely beautiful in a different way. And we talk about like Spirited Away being stunning we talk about um Howl's moving castle and ponyo being gorgeous and princess mononoke and it's true this film looks like a charcoal sketch with watercolor like a yukioi painting like an old japanese painting and it's all hand drawn every fucking frame of it um and it's stunning in its simplicity it genuinely is so engrossing and so terrifyingly beautiful because everyone everything moves even when something is still and the butterfly just flutters through the scene or there's a moment because again weirdly enough like everything that comes from another planet that's adopted she's also kind of superman um there's a scene <laughs> where she flies and of course she is. it's oh christ it's it's just is that how they got not, dean kane do you think <laughs> <laughs> very possible it's it's it, it's as evocative if not more so than every superman flying scene i've ever seen there's one she just jumps through the trees with uh, this boy she's friends with from from um from childhood, uh, tomorrow, and then she just flying, and then she literally just falls, and her hair is going, and her you can see she's extending her neck as she does it, and then she just bounces from the floor <laughs> off, and you see a POV, and it's just it's just fucking stunning, and I, I again I get emotional thinking about it because of how it's presented, and that another thing goes with that is a classic thing we talk about these films, uh, Joe Hisayashi, the the composer. If you listen, if you, it, the best thing I can tease this with is look at a single art frame and listen to the track Despair from this score by Hisayashi. Um, H-I-S-A-I-S-H-I. And it's just like a minute long. And it's a scene where it would be in other hands done very differently. She's, she's heard what these people are saying behind this screen about, oh, maybe she doesn't exist. Maybe you know, we can't see this girl. Maybe she's fucking hideous. There's a fucking ogre in there. Christ. And she just tears through the house rips off all her sort of like her, her her finery and just runs through these sheet doors and into the woods and just sort of cries at the moon but her face this this sort of smeared charcoal image is just stunning and the score is simple and terrifying and beautiful um the the original language is great 
obviously uh, in terms of the translation uh, sorry in terms of the the performance but the english dub is also good chloe grace moretz plays uh kaguya herself oh nice yeah and uh james khan plays her father and it's wonderful because james khan gives a really doting beautiful performance that you think that's james fucking khan <laughs> jesus christ uh, the the, bo- the bamboo cutter's wife, the mother is play- uh, and the narrator is Mary Steenburgen. She's magnificent. Uh, lady Sagami, the woman who teaches her how to be a proper lady in vote commas and paint her teeth black and plucks out her eyebrow hair one by one and makes her cry. Says, I don't want to lose my eyebrows. What happens when my sweat pours down my face? And it's like, it won't because you're a lady. You won't be doing any of that shit. It's played by Lucy Liu. Um, nice. George Seagal, James Marsden, Oliver Platt, Daniel Day Kim. Bo Bridges, John Cho, every motherfucker <laughs> in this movie is a and, and Dean Kane <laughs> is also power, Dean Kane is a powerhouse and Dean Kane. But Dean Kane's good in it. He plays the Emperor. He's like, oh, oh, she's playing a game. I'd love to meet her. And it's like, you know, no one's seen her. And because I'm the Emperor, I get to have you in my court. And he just goes and hugs her and says, everyone wants this. And like, I don't get the fuck away from me. Um it it's it's magnificent. I, again, I can't I can't extol enough praise on this movie. It is, in my opinion, the best Ghibli film. Wow. But that is such a difficult thing to get across to people because people's favorite is their best. <laughs> and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And the best, this didn't, by the way, I should point out, this one, I'm pretty sure, did not win the Oscar. It was up for an Oscar, but it didn't win it. If I remember correctly. Who's you are it? correct, Matt. Yeah. It lost a Big Hero 6. Yep. And everybody was like, you had Big Hero 6. Big Hero 6, by the way, is a great film. I love that film. But it was up against Box Trolls, which was an, a, a stop motion film from Leica. How to Train Your Dragon 2, which is one of the best sequels of all time. Song of the Sea, which is fucking stunning Irish movie. Mm-hmm. And The Tale of Princess Kaguya. That is a strong year. And I still feel you went with the wrong one. <laughs> But yeah, Princess Kaguya is, is an amazing movie, very troubled, didn't make a ton of money. It made kind of piss all. It's what apparently got Miyazaki back out of his sort of retirement to The Wind Rises because they're like, this is going to sink the company. This movie is too big. It's gone too long. It, it, made, it made fucking tons of money in, you know, in Japan, especially and worldwide, but not enough to counter that immense budget of trying to go through all this stuff. Um, but as a legacy piece, in terms of what we look back on as one of the most important pieces of cinema, you talk about, like, you know, Ponyo is inspired by The Little Mermaid. Uh, Prince Monarch is inspired by classic Japanese folklore. All these bits and pieces. This is a pure Japanese, actual bit of folklore from the thousand years. One of the most overriding stories they've got. One of the most enduring stories they've got. And it may be one of the most important Japanese films for that regard. Um, but again, and this isn't, this isn't a slight against people, most haven't seen it because either they'll say, "Yeah, I'll get around to it," or the artwork looks kind of simple, <laughs> a bit cartoony, like like my neighbor's the Yamadas, where it's got that simplistic, blocky. You know, the yeah. road is white, the background's white, everything's very cartoony. It's like, where's the rest of the details? Like, you don't need the detail. The watercolor in this artwork and the charcoal tells you what you need to focus on. It's about a feeling. It's, it, but yeah, it's a hard one to describe. Hopefully, an easy one to sell. But everyone who watches it comes away with an appreciation for it. I don't know anybody who's watched this movie, and I'm thinking that critically and also personally, who said, that was shit, man. And in fact, I can back you up with some stats on back that, Back me the fuck up, Jack. Because The Tale of Princess Kaguya from 2013 mm-hmm. 
is 100% on the tomatometer. That is impressive. (laughs) There you go. If you hadn't already been inspired by Matt's impassioned speech over the last, yeah, 10 minutes or so, then 100% on Rotten Tomatoes kind of says it all and backs up your claims, Matthew. Your lofty, lofty claims (laughs) at that. Thank you. (laughs) I think think the weird thing about it is uh, Takahata. I don't know that every one of them, but I know that almost nothing from Ghibli has a negative review, <clears throat> except mm. maybe uh, Tells from Earthsea. But everything he's done has a very high rank. I know my neighbor's Yamada's had a bit of a dip, but everything's like high 80s, 90s, 100s, and Metacritic backs that up, if I remember correctly. It's one of those things. Yeah, Metacritic and the Rotten Tomatoes cause. So obviously, for those of you who don't know, Metacritic is an aggregated average, so you take all the things and they score it. So you take a 9 out of 10, you take a 90%, all that kind of stuff, you work out the average from there. Whereas Rotten Tomatoes is a percentage of positive reviews. And a positive review is considered 6 out of 10 or 60%, however you want to do it, or higher. Mm. And yeah, Taylor Princess Kaguya is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Let me just check calculations for metacritic bear with me average scores do, 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 89 out of 100 on metacritic which is considered universal acclaim by their metrics so yeah that is incredibly high on metacritic i think the only and again i don't know the statistics but i think there's only two other films that ghibli have a 100 percent rotten tomatoes i could be wrong but i think it is I think it's Grave of the Fireflies and Only Yesterday, both of which are Takahata films. I find that stunning. I think it might be also exposure, you know, less critics are going, oh, it's mm. fewer critics. Yeah, that's a lot of them, yeah. But, but at the same time, it, it's one of those sort of eye opening moments like, wait, what? Really? It's like, yeah. And there's a fucking reason because all those movies are, are the three I just listed, stunning in terms of the emotion mm. that they put across and that, that the thing about nostalgia earlier. That idea of this thing for the past, like, God, that's just, why am I sad? <laughs> so yeah, Ghibli, Ghibli's a thing, and it's not just a kid's year. Kids can watch, a child can, the tale of the Princess Kaguya is rated U. It's got, and this is because yep. of the nature of the, the, the accurate portrayal of life. It's got naked kids. Don't get weird. It's just the idea that, you know, you wouldn't like, you'd put kids in like a, like a sleeve or an outfit. And when she's born, she's done this. Blah blah blah, and it's like, oh no, she's hungry. I better pop out my booby, and she can suck on that. It's like, well, hang on a minute, an exposed breast—that's going to get at least a twelve or a fifteen. It's like, well, it's animated, and she's feeding a child. Oh, okay, it's fine. It's you. Kids can watch this stuff, and it's innocent, and it's sweet, and it's very much the threat is interesting in terms of how it's presented. But at the same time, adults are getting the same, if not a lot more, out of this, um, and that's something I think that Disney has a bit of a fine line with. That's why things like Shrek were hugely successful when they first came out, the first Shrek film, because it wasn't just for kids. There was stuff for adults too. The thing with the tale of Princess Kaguya, a kid's going to go, oh, this is a nice, sweet story about a, a little old girl who grows up and goes back to the moon. Oh, that's sad. That's nice though. And the adult's going, oh my God. Oh my God. Being an adult, an adoptee and being someone who has no kids or has just childhood friends and my past and my future and not knowing what I want in my life and things that people want from me. Oh my fuck, I can't deal with all this shit. It's too much. It's too much raw emotion. Someone might watch this and go, scrappy looking in it. That's <laughs> all right. <laughs> but they're wrong. 
<laughs> I'm sure we'll get somebody who's like, yeah, sorry, it was fine. Yeah, and I'll fucking find him and I'll fight them. There we go. If we don't end on that note, I don't know what else, what other note we could end it on. Matt threatening to fight people who don't Just like... Just screaming, the Tale of Princess Kaguya is Prince beautiful Kaguya. and I'll fucking kill you so you understand that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, if you have any particular highlights of your experiences with Studio Ghibli, if you do somehow dislike the Tale of Princess Kaguya, let us know. You can contact us on all the social medias. We are Sequelizers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can, of course, find all of our contact details, our Discord, our Patreon, all that kind of stuff at sequelizers.com as well. Again, there's a link on our Twitter profile for all of our Discord stuff. There's a link to the website on our Twitter. You basically put that word in somewhere and you'll find us on the internet. Nice and easy. If you want to find me, I am JLW Chambers. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I talk about professional wrestling and my work, which is SEO stuff and uh, movies I'm watching, TV I'm watching, video games I'm playing, all that usual stuff. Matt, how can people follow you on social media? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to the redrighthand.co.uk and read my reviews. You can go to cheesemint.com and see the films that I make. Tim, um, on the moon, you must have a different name. What, what, what can I reach you <laughs> on the moon? Uh, once I've returned to the, the, the moon, I will forget all about this earthly life, uh, but I'll still be on fucking Twitter um where i'll be trivia <laughs> underscore lad uh where you can find me uh recently uh retweeting uh stuff about comics and saying how uh allegedly i'd like to beat richard branson to death with a shovel i mean he is a prick i've met richard branson I've he is a prick been in a room where he's been talking and by room i mean aircraft carrier style presentation hall uh but yeah Any, anyway allegedly allegedly i'd like to ble- beat him with a shovel i mean he probably doesn't like the tales of probably not bastard. his favorite studio ghibli film is cloudy with a chance of meatballs <laughs> it's a good film though with james khan ah <laughs> uh, tying it all background beautiful well, on that note, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Please do let us know your thoughts on your favourite Studio Ghibli films. And we'll be back next week with more interseason goodness. And I know I say this every time. Something completely different. And in fact, it's a patron pick mm-hmm. next week. So oh. there's a little tease for you. Some of the patrons know what's going on. And uh, yeah, it's exciting and very, very different to some Studio Ghibli. <laughs> films with ham exactly 100% <laughs> ham all the time and and uh patrons also have our first uh exclusive episode Ooh, of the soon, end season yeah. to look forward to uh very shortly exactly. inadvertently accidentally almost teased it earlier and then thought no that's mm. out yet <laughs> mm. there's a little tease for you listeners mm, go digging exactly well thank you very much we'll see you next week thanks for listening goodbye bye today ham, ham. Ha, 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 ha.